Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Ciao, everybody, and welcome to another exciting edition of the Jalo Chow Chow podcast, the All Jalo Show. This is episode 97, where Al and I are going to do a deep dive on the 1966 prototype Jalo called The Third Eye, starring our beloved Franco Nero, who's up for the award of overacting. <laughs> I'm your host, Chris. And I run a little website called thejalloscore.com. Please go visit it. It's great. I love it. And joining me today, all the way from the motherland of Jalo Films, also known as Italy, our good buddy, Al. How are you, sir? Ciao, ciao. How's everything? Ciao, ciao. Everything's good. How are you? Excellent. So let's see. Last episode, we talked about uh, the doll of Satan and... Um, not to be outdone by his previous animated GIF submission, <laughs> or GIF. Is it GIF or GIF? Uh, I say GIF, because for me, GIF is a brand of peanut butter. So, Right, and spelled with a J. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, yes. So, Al submitted a second in the series of animated GIFs. This one is... Dance like a doll, a doll for Satan. And um, I, I almost spit out whatever it was I was drinking when that popped up on the screen. <laughs> it's really funny. How did you go about making that, putting that together? I just took a, well, I took about a minute and a half clip out of the film in that club scene. And every time I do this, when I start out, I feel like I'm, uh, Federico Fellini, you know, I have like, uh, 
what do you call it? Um, not sketchboards. Oh, like like storyboards. Storyboards. That's it. Yeah. Then the more I get into it, the more I realize, okay, I just made like a five minute GIF or GIF. Shit, I just <laughs> <laughs> I just made a five minute peanut butter sandwich, and it's a. Uh, the file is huge and is too complicated. And this time I decided to go pretty simple. So I just found the best example of that one guy in the purple sweater dancing with his yeah. arm straight down. And it yep. was only so many seconds long. So I just reversed it and tacked it on and then snipped some frames on the end to try to help the flow so it doesn't look like it's restarting all the time like a lot of <laughs> gifs do yeah and then i just added the the captioning on it and luckily one of the fonts that was in this dinky little gif creator software that i downloaded had that kind of 60s psychedelic looking groovy font type cool lettering and i thought that fit in pretty well so i used that yeah, I enjoyed it very, very much. For those of you who may not have noticed, we had such a long conversation regarding the doll of Satan that the the the, the you know the the buildup or the prologue to that discussion was a discussion on an article about uh, '80s slashers, and we only talked for about a half an hour. But I really just it, it didn't seem right to add that in with everything else. Uh, and make the episode go into the five-hour mark. So what I did instead is I released the article uh, as its own bonus episode. And ladies and gentlemen, please do not think that at any point I plan on monetizing bonus episodes because it's it's not something that uh, I, I wish to do. I think that you know, Al and I and anybody else who uh, participates in this podcast is doing it for fun. And that's how it's going to stay. I don't ask for money. I don't, I don't put any exclusive content out there for paying customers. It's all for the love of the genre and the films themselves. So this will happen again. I, I, I'm convinced of it because I'm sure we'll have another very long discussion before we have a very long discussion. And it'll need to be broken <laughs> out into two. So, or even three. Um, but I'm interested in hearing if anybody has any sort of feedback on the bonus episodes, whether it was interesting or not, and whether I should be separating them out for easier digestibility, if that's a word, uh, or if it's better to just uh, have really big, long episodes. So let us know what you think, either by going to the Jalo Chow Chow Facebook group, which is a private group, but um, everyone is welcome. Or by emailing us at jollochowchow at gmail.com. And again, there's no exclamation points in the email address. It's just jollochowchow at gmail.com. Just to finish my thought about the podcast itself, I got an email yesterday or maybe the day before from Podbean, which is where we host our podcast. And it said, thank you for renewing your podcast hosting for another year. Here's a bill for a hundred dollars. <laughs> um, and this happened last year and maybe even the year before that, I can't remember, but I keep forgetting that this is on a yearly renewal. Um, just like everything else, you know, in this modern age, we kind of set it and forget it. And then it comes to bite us in the ass. Um, 
when we realize that we've been paying for something that we're not using, like a gym membership. But uh, anyway, um, <laughs> in this particular case, we're using it. I'm making good use of the Podbean platform. I really like it. It's, uh, it's robust and also very cheap. So um, you guys have us for another year. It uh, doesn't necessarily mean that we'll, we'll make another year's worth of episodes. We don't know if that will happen, but for sure, the podcasts up until today will be available for another year. So we did get an email from uh, Pete Halverson, I believe. Is it Halverson? Yeah, Halverson, who um, is part of our group and obviously a listener of the podcast. And he was the one who turned us on to the Bloodstained Narratives book because he works for the publishing house. Oh, thank you, Pete. And we did. Yeah, thank you, Pete. He We, we talked about that uh, a few episodes ago. I'm not sure exactly which one it was, um, but it is a modern brand new book that came out uh i think in the spring and it's got a bunch of really nice uh academic articles about giallo and different flavors of giallo and so on and we did uh an extensive review of the book back again like i said um a few episodes ago but i got an email from uh, from pete who said hey guys I enjoyed the scene-by-scene commentary on Psych Out for Murder. I had watched this one a few years ago, and I felt, and I feel like I understand it better now. I was so taken with Lichia's beauty that I couldn't figure out her, if her craziness was a put-on or perhaps caused by her time in the asylum. Uh, either way, she gets what she wants in the end. It seems like a somber existence to have your father's love and nothing else. Not to mention that Lichia had killed or alienated everyone else that cared for her. I wish she had at least spared her sister. And weren't the montage scenes fun? <laughs> and they certainly were. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a white dress for Mariale. I have seen this movie thanks to Tubi and must say it's pretty bizarre. I felt dirty after watching it. Well, there, there's a... Ringing endorsement for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> definitely worth a watch, but not one of my favorites. The book Bloodstained Narratives includes an interview with Romano Scavolini in which he talks about troubles during production and even admits that he doesn't really like the finished product. I'm sure y'all would have a good time talking about it. Uh, I don't mind the long podcasts. I put it on at work. Uh, it and listen to it in chunks during the week. I agree that Matt would have been great as a fashion consultant for Psych Out for Murder. Those outfits were fire. I also really like the Italian insight that Al adds to the podcast. Ciao, ciao, Pete. So thank you, Pete, for sending us that uh, bit of feedback. We really appreciate it. And um, I will look into that article because I know we talked about uh, a couple episodes back, Romano Scavolini's Nightmare or Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, which is his 80s slasher. But he did direct a film that most people consider a giallo called A White Dress for Mariale in the 70s. And uh, to tie that in with his with the book that he was promoting, apparently there is a Romano Scavolini article 
in that book, which I must have overlooked because uh, I did only go through the first half of that book and then um, got sidetracked. So um, it sounds like we have some good content for a future episode, which would be to watch the film, check out the article in the book and uh, talk about both. So, And that's a title I've come across a few times uh, looking at and for other things. And I've kind of been curious about it, but uh, I just have, I have so many things on my watch list already. I've never gotten around to it yet. And that sounds like a good excuse to do that. Okay, so before we get to today's deep dive, real quick, I also wanted to share with everybody that the, 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 the folks at Exhumed Films, which I have been speaking about over the years, over and over and over again, because they put on great festivals and uh, double features and whatnot. They do um, a bunch of drive-in movies that I've never been to, uh, see previous episodes for why I don't go to them. Um <laughs> But they also do things in Center City, Philadelphia, which is way more accessible for me. And on November 25th, that is Thanksgiving Saturday, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, we have Spaghetti Shockers Part 2. And Spaghetti Shockers, it's called Part 2 because there was a Spaghetti Shockers Part 1. I wish off the top of my head I could remember which films were in it, but I think Eyeball was one of them, which is why I went. I mean, it was kind of like, how could you not go see Eyeball on the big screen, right? Well, yeah. Um, and it was great because the the crowd, not being a you know bunch of jalo hardcore people like we are, um, <laughs> they loved it. They fucking loved Eyeball. People were clapping and laughing and um, at just the sheer ridiculousness of the film. But I have to go back and look and see what other films they played. I can't remember what they were. Um, it's not always all giallo. You know, the fact that it's called Spaghetti Shockers just basically means that we're getting Italian films. So this time around, they're going to be screening Tenebrae, which is basically the, worth the price of admission right there. Yeah. Uh, Fulci's House by the Cemetery. The Great Alligator, which was a film directed by Sergio Martino in 1979, which I've never seen. Huh. The Sweet Body of Deborah, which we've spent a lot of time with um, and will be great to see on a big screen. And then um, Della Morte, Della More, which is a modern-ish film. When I say modern, I mean 90s, uh, directed <laughs> by Michel Suave. But uh, I don't know if you ever saw Della Morte, Della More. It's also called Cemetery Man, and Rupert Everett is in it. So Yeah, I came across that when I was going through my zombie phase that I think I mentioned a while back. Okay. And I was aware of one of the main actresses in that film. Uh, her name is Anna Falke. I had seen her on the cover of a magazine at some point in the 90s when I came over here in uh, during the summer. And I was, well, let's say, impressed. 
And right. when I was looking up zombie movies to check out, besides, you know, the ones that everybody's heard of, I saw her name on the credits for that film. So obviously I had to watch it. And yeah. it it's not a very typical zombie film, which I really appreciated because we not so many, at all. So not many different all. ways to recycle the Walking Dead type tropes, you know. Yeah, but uh, it's been a while since I've seen it. But I can imagine it'd be a lot of fun to see that on a big screen if you get the chance. Yeah, I was going to say the same exact thing. I haven't seen it in quite a while, and I know that there were a couple of different versions. I think the Della Morte Della More version is. Mm you know, synonymous with the uncut um, and the cemetery man was like a U.S. export. And um, I just remember it being kind of quirky and odd. Not that either of those things are bad. Um, I know that the main character that Rupert Everett plays does a lot of like narrative voiceover during the film. That's one of the things I remember about it. Although I'm not sure, you know, one of the things that happens when you get old is that <laughs> you have less and less um, amount of um, stamina for these kind of film festivals. And uh, this thing starts at noon on a Saturday and ends at 1030 at night on a Saturday. So wow. it's not, it's not um, ridiculous to think that I could make it for the whole thing. But I'm, I am glad that they put Della Morte Della More at the end. Cause I may jet out after sweet body of Deborah. But mm -hmm. the other thing that's worth noting is that, um, because they're, they, because they are using all 35 millimeter prints of these, some of them are in Italian. So I don't know if Tenebrae was ever released in the United States uncut in 35 millimeter in English. It probably wasn't. So um, maybe you'll get the unsane version. No, cause the, the tenebrae that they're showing is in Italian with English subtitles. Right, right. Right. So I think I'm getting the Italian cut, but I think like unsane was the version that was exported. So uh, and it was probably chopped but, up a bit. Yeah, yeah, like especially um, the scene where the the woman is waiting in the rain by the window and the axe comes in and chops her arm off. Yeah, All of that is completely cut out from the Unsane version. Um, but interestingly enough, House by the Cemetery is in English and The Sweet Body of Deborah is in English. So hmm. I would assume that those are because they were released... Um, either abroad or not even abroad, but I guess they were released to the general public, no matter which country in, I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of guessing as I, as I go along here, but I don't know why it, is there any reason why you would expect, say a film like the sweet body of Deborah released in 1969, if you were watching it in Italy would you expect that it would have an English language soundtrack? I wouldn't. I imagine not. But maybe they 
just released it uncut in some English speaking countries or right any other country. Um, yeah, you might be right. It might be a, it might be about the fact that it's either um that it's been censored. Mm-hmm. And that that these are the uncut 35 millimeters. Yeah, there's so many different variables that go into this whole thing, but Yeah, so about that, if you're watching a 35 millimeter print of Tenet, but uh, which came out in 82, I doubt any studio has re-released it or made new 35 millimeter prints of it since right. somewhere in the 1980s. If it's in Italian, is it going to have English subtitles? Yes, that's what it says. Okay, so are those subtitles that were on there on those reels since 1982, or did they go through and add them somehow? Or do they have some little doohickey in the projection booth that will just simulcast? Or whatever they call it, the uh, the subtitles. I, I you know that is a really good question, and when I go, I will ask someone about this because, you know, the the question is where did the subtitles come from? Were they are they part of the the actual film, or is it getting fed through some sort of closed captioning um, device that yeah. projects them? you know, in real time. And in that case, maybe they won't be accurate, but that's a good question. Because I would want to say that, you know, the unsane version, that might've just been a cut for the American market. But then I think back with Britain having the video nasties and all that, maybe they didn't release the, the full version there too. Right. Right. So what's the sense of having an international, uh, edited version for the American and maybe British, who who knows, other markets, but then still put out the original version with subtitles at the time. That seems like a little bit of extra trouble. Right. So when you saw Unsane, was the Italian dubbed into English or redubbed? Or... Uh, I saw a video, a VHS copy of Unsane a long time ago, okay. and I don't remember. Uh. <laughs> but, you know, like Tenebrae had a budget that was enough to say, like, if you remember the opening scene of Tenebrae, they show the killer kind of looking at the book. Mm-hmm. And then they have these macro close ups of the words in the book. And depending right. on which version you're you're watching, um, they they cut uh, multiple versions of that scene with different languages of the book. I don't know if they did one in French or German, uh, but there certainly is an Italian version, and there definitely is an English version. And if you watch, I, w- I would assume that if you watch this one, the one that's uh, the uncut in Italian language, it's also going to have Italian words to it, um, you know, written words. Yeah, the version I have, um, the the book is in Italian. Well, maybe that's what they did. If when they released the Unsane version, if that was still with the Italian language but had English subtitles, maybe they just took elements of the uncensored or the unedited version and spliced them into a reel of Unsane. Know what I mean? Right. Could be. So. 
I don't know. It's, well, it's, the un, the unsane version, if I remember correctly, was in English, English mm-hmm. soundtrack. So. Okay. Well. But anyway, that looks like it's going to be fun for sure. Tenebrae House by the Ten- House by the Cemetery is a fun Fulci movie. It's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. It's really gory, <laughs> and it's a lot, a lot of fun. Um, right. Any of those by Fulci from that time period? Zombie. Well, Zombie is Zombie's kind of in a different league because it's kind of, uh, you know, it's it's just it's it's a very classic Walking Dead film, whereas. House by the Cemetery, Gates of Hell, and The Beyond are all kind of supernatural zombie movies. Yeah. And House by the Cemetery is, is a lot of fun. Um, now, as far as The Great Alligator is concerned, never saw that. I don't know if I should see it before I go see this. I mean, it probably won't have time. I've got a, a lot of stuff in my queue here. And The Sweet Body of Deborah. Uh, that's going to be fun to watch, especially since it's in English. And I've brought this up a million times and I'm going to bring it up again with the film that we're going to cover in a few minutes. The idea that I like to have an English language copy, even though I know that the voices are not the same as the actors. And that's because I want to look at the image of the film. I want to have all of my attention available and all my faculties available to absorb the artistry of the composed image. And when I'm watching a film with subtitles, I get distracted from being able to do that because I have to look down and read. Um, and in the case of the movie that we're going to do today, I watched the subtitle version and then I watched the English language version. So I got a little bit of both. Um, but anyway, The Sweet Body of Deborah is going to be presented in an English language. And that's the one, if you guys remember, it's um, Carol Baker and Jean Sorel. And it's uh, it's kind of like a travel log giallo. I think like at one point they're in Switzerland and then they go to Mallorca and then they go here and then they go there. And, oh, that's the one. Oh, oh. now this will probably result in a, a lot of groaning and or clapping and or laughing <laughs> from the audience. But that's the film where Carol Baker wears those fucking Christmas ball earrings. And then when, when she, when she's out at the dance club, they're like green. And then they go back to the place that they're renting and play twister. Right. And, Oh, Oh God. And she looks like that's... the Riddler from Batman. Yeah, yeah, she has that like onesie on her, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see that with a crowd. It's going to be great. Okay, so anyway, if anybody lives anywhere near the Philadelphia metropolitan area, even if you're from New York, uh, this is probably worth the drive from New York. Um, it's happening once again on November 25th, starting at noon until 10.30, it is being held at the Philadelphia Film Society. All right, everybody. So it is now time to get to our feature presentation. This is a film called The Third Eye. 
Yes, it is. Il Terzo Occhio, Italian for the Third Eye. The original title, or the working title, was Il Freddo Bacio della Morte, which means the Cold Kiss of Death. And from something I came across, it seems that the French release of this film went by the French version of that title. Uh, it was shot in 1965. It was released on June 11, 1966. It had a box office take of 72 million lire. So, Woo. yeah, that sounds like a lot of money. In 1966, <laughs> that was the American equivalent of $115,386.69. And if you Add, adjust that for inflation. Today, that would be the equivalent of $1,088,662.74. I could not find any information about the budget because that type of insider secret information is behind a paywall of some kind on IMDb. <laughs> And I don't have 72 million lire laying around to pay for that, so I'm not checking all that. But I would hope that a movie that makes a million dollars today would have cost very little to make, because that doesn't seem like a huge profit by today's standards. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like, I mean, we don't really know this, but if we if we knew the budget and you could then also calculate that for inflation then you could see whether we could call this a flop or not you know it's mm -hmm. that's really what it comes down to was this a profitable film right right and another factor to keep in mind when you're considering box office at the time for italian films uh, especially in the the 60s italy is not as large a market as the u.s is and Italian films don't uh, don't enjoy the appreciation globally that American films do. So, if an American film, you know, a country of let's say three hundred million people, if uh, shit, now I got myself into a math corner I can't get out of, but. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's say uh, let's say a third of people that live in America go to see your movie. That's a hundred million tickets you've sold. Well, in Italy, there's only sixty million people. So if a third of Italy goes to see a movie, that's twenty million tickets sold. And in America, that's probably not a lot compared to whatever the summer blockbuster is. Right. That's really bad. Right. And. 
almost any American blockbuster is go- can count on being released all over the world. And that's just more box office. And frankly, Italy being the only country that speaks Italian, it's not like uh, like French films or Spanish films where there are other countries that speak that language that could watch it. Um, the the market is relatively limited, but uh, again, it it made some money, I guess. I don't. Oh, think that's they, a that's a really good point that I never thought of. Um, is there? Is there anywhere else in the world that speaks Italian besides Italy? I think you said someplace in South America there's a lot of Italians. There are a lot of people who have emigrated from Italy to Argentina and uh, near Buenos Aires specifically. But as far as I know, the only other place on the planet that has Italian as an official language is part of Switzerland. Officially, Switzerland has four official languages, including Italian, French, German, and a language that is particular to a part of Switzerland known as Romash, which is another kind of Romance-type language. Right. Um, So, outside of Italy and part of Switzerland and specifically the part that is right up against Italy. Uh, I've, I've traveled through Switzerland before and as you cross the border, it's still possible to see signs and hear people speaking in Italian. And the further into Switzerland you get, whether it's towards France or towards Germany, the signs start to change. And, uh, If you compare that to a language like French, okay, they speak French in France, duh, of course. They (laughs) speak French in parts of Canada, and they speak French in, uh, I think, maybe Mozambique, different countries in Africa. Right. If you look at Spanish, duh, Spain, Mexico, all of South America, except for Brazil, and by that token, even Portugal. As small a country as it is geographically compared to Italy, all of Brazil speaks Portuguese. So, you know, a Portuguese film might have a larger audience. I don't know the population numbers, but uh, if just looking at the globe, square miles, I would say Brazil's larger than Italy. Sure. And, but uh, American films, I mean, part of my career since I've lived here is teaching English to business people and students. And many of them have no desire to live in England or America or Australia. They just want to get ahead because it's the international language of business. So if they work for a company that has prospects in Sweden, they're not going to learn Swedish just to go after this one contract. And the Swedes aren't going to learn Italian just to speak to this one possible supplier of parts for whatever it is they make. Um, and that also kind of opens up the market for American films. Right, right. So That's interesting. Yes. 
So there's different factors uh, to consider when Absolutely. you're looking at the box office. Uh, never mind the fact that the Italian lira doesn't even exist anymore. It's been replaced right. by euros. And the inflation. Oh, one of the sites I went to to adjust the inflation told me that since the summer of 1966, inflation has gone up. Well, the rate of inflation has been like 854%. Mm. So that's, mm. that's wow. quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Uh, the Third Eye was directed by Mino Guerini. He was born in 1927 in Rome, and he died in 1990 in Rimini. He has 27 directing credits between 1964 and 1986. He did all sorts of films, different genres. But the very next year, in 1967, he directed a film called Omicidio per Appuntamento, which is Date for a Murder. And if I'm not mistaken, that is one of our short list before we hit the 100 episode. Yeah, that's, that's, you know what? I didn't even make that connection. So we may be doing a double, we may be doing a, um, a double feature of Mino Guarini. 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 Yeah. Guarini. Okay. Okay. Uh, Mino Guarini is also one of the credited writers for this film. He has 26 writing credits between 53 and 1990. So apparently he was writing for 11 years before he got a chance to direct. And even though he died in 1986, his last writing credit of 1990 is because of a TV series that he wrote episodes for that were produced and released after his death. And... This is interesting because it ties into something we spoke about on the last episode. One of his writing credits is for Buyo Omega from 1979. Uh And as we'll be getting into, this film is considered a, well, a source for the plot of Buyo Omega. And if you consider that the writer was the same and uh, it, that makes a little more sense when you think, you know, the same. So I guess if you're going to, you know, if I was going to rewrite Tom Sawyer, I would call Mark Twain to help me out. <laughs> so when well, Joe... I guess, yeah, that's my question. Um, is he getting a writing credit on the Joe D'Amato version simply because of this film or because he was consulted and, and contributed to the Joe Diamato film. Well, let's see. Cause nowadays, if you look at, um, when people give writing credits for various types of music, a lot of these things have happened where somebody makes a song and somebody says, Hey, that sounds a lot like this song. Mm-hmm. And instead of waiting until the legal team for the original artist gets in touch with the new artist and says, hey, you owe us some money, a lot of times what they'll do is if somebody says something like, hey, this song sounds like this, 
And if, if enough people say it, and if enough people, I guess, in the industry recognize it, they'll say, okay, let's give a writing credit to such and such. Like, I think there was a, a, a um, you know, I, I'm going to delve into some of the music that my kids like. Okay. There was a song by Dua Lipa, if you're familiar with her. I've and heard the name. She did, I think it was Dua Lipa, or it might have been... No, it wasn't Dua Lipa. It was an, anyway, it was one of the newer, modern female singers. And the song sounded a lot like a song by the band Paramore. Mm. And um, if you go and look up the song on Wikipedia, Paramore, or at least one of the members of Paramore, is giving a writing credit for this new song. Um, and I don't think that the person from Paramore actually worked with this new artist to create the song. I think they just said, Hey, to cover our butts legally, we're going to give them a writing credit and we're going to start sending them a little bit of the money that we get from this music. So, right. I guess that's my question of whether or not Mino Guarini actually wrote something and contributed to Diamato's film, or if it was just considered inspiration for well, checking the IMDb page for Buyo Omega or Beyond the Darkness, there are only two writers credited on that, one of which is Mino Quirini, the other is a man named Ottavio Fabri, and he only has three writing credits. And one was for a film in 76, which looks kind of like a documentary. And, oh wait, no, I was wrong. I was looking at his directing credits. Well, yeah, okay, the same thing. And a film called Banana Republic that came out in 1979. So, considering Mino Guidini has more writing credits, and this Ottavio Fabri guy seemed to only write things that he was personally directing, by looking at his page. I would... I don't know. It's hard to tell because... I haven't really seen Buyo Omega. So I can't tell. And you should. Yeah. Well, it's it's <laughs> on my... I was going to say short list, but my short watch list gets longer and longer every week. <laughs> and uh, it will continue to grow until I've seen every frame that... Features Fami Benusi, apparently. <laughs> but, uh, no reason so, not to. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, um, the Jude, the Joe Diamato film is really good. It's it's gross. It's disgusting. It's really in poor taste. Um, but it's really it's a good film. I like it. I still have to watch Anthropophagus too. Because you've told me about that. And I notice it keeps popping up. You know, that and uh, what was it? Absurd, you said, was the sequel? Correct. Yes. Okay, great. Which I haven't seen yet, so. Okay. Well, Joe D'Amato is about to come up again in this conversation. But <laughs> uh, let me get to that in uh, in some sort of sane order. One of the other <laughs> writers... With a man named Piero Regnoli. We have heard of him before. He was born in 1921 in Rome, and he died in 2001 in Rome. 
He has 117 writing credits between 1951 and 1997, including Psych Out for Murder from 1969. All right. So we've seen his work. And if you're big on Italian uh, spaghetti shocker type films, you've probably seen Nightmare City by Umberto Lenzi from 1980. He's a credited writer on that. Wow. The we didn't I, we didn't plan this, ladies and gentlemen. We really didn't. It's just all, you know, coincidence. Yeah. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, Italian cinema is a flat circle. So. <laughs> Uh, the story idea credit goes to one of the producers named Ermano Donati. He was born in Rome in 1920. He died in London in 1979. He has 44 production credits, including uh, The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock from 1962, which fans of Barbara Steele might have checked out or want to. And he was one of the producers of Buyo Omega from 1979. Wow. Uh, I'm starting to get the idea that the Italian film industry was pretty incestuous back then. <laughs> everybody's in everybody's business. Uh, the other producer was Luigi Carpentieri. He was born 1919 in Rome, and he died somewhere in Italy in 1987. He has 42 production credits, including the same horrible Dr. Hitchcock. And looking at their two lists of production credits side by side, apparently Luigi and Erdemano work together very often. And I could not find a name for a production company that they would have worked under to say that this was produced by Luigi Erdemano Films or whatever. But I did notice that it was distributed by Medusa Films. So if you ever see that little logo at the beginning of a film of the uh it's a kind of cartoony looking medusa uh this is that company the music in this film was composed by francesco de masi he has 137 composing credits between 52 and 2008 he also was born and died in rome from uh, 1930 to 2005 and we have definitely seen, well, heard his work before yes. because he did the music for The Murder Clinic from 1966 and also The Weekend Murders from 1970 and Fulci's New York Ripper, 1982. On top of that, some of his music was used in Quentin Tarantino's last film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The cinematographer was Alessandro Deva, and he is credited at the beginning of this film as Sandy Deeds. So I thought that was a kind of clever way to Americanize or Anglicize his name. He was born in 1927 in the city of Udine, which is about half an hour, 40 minutes away from where I live right now. And he died in 2013 in Rome. He has 66 cinematography uh, credits between 1961 and 1996. The credit on his page that stuck out the most to me was in 1969, he was the cameraman 
for Top Sensation, starring mm-hmm. Edwige Fenech, Rosalba Neri, and Eva Tulin. So, imagine being the cameraman on that film shoot. Uh, yeah, dream job. Obviously, uh-huh. uh, between 69 and 96, his career was all downhill from there. I don't care what else he did. <laughs> but... Uh, Good for him. The editing. And as I said a couple episodes ago, usually I don't do the editing, but there was some interesting information regarding this lady. Her name is Ornella Michele. There's no biographical information, but she has 60 editing credits between 1950 and 1981, including a lot of Joe D'Amato films like uh-huh. Anthrop- Anthropophagus from 1980. And, again, Buyo Omega. That's going to be the secret word for this episode. So every time you hear it, <laughs> take a shot. And uh, a couple of his zombie porn movies, like uh, Porno Holocaust and, I don't know, Island of the Fucking Dead or something. I don't know. But <laughs> she also did some Lucho Fulci films, including one on top of the other in 1969. Don't Torture a Duckling from 1972, and The Psychic, or Seven Notes in Black, from 1977. So, I thought that was a pretty cool connection. Groovy. And another connection to the murder clinic is the location of this film. You don't really notice it so much because of the outside, but a keen eye and a good memory, which I only have either one of those half the time. (laughs) <laughs> this film was shot at the Villa Parisi, which is the the same mansion where they shot the murder clinic. And you can tell by the uh, decorative painting on the walls in some of the bedrooms. I don't really remember seeing a good shot of the outside. That would, yeah, there are uh, there are a few shots of the outside. They're not um, on screen for very long, but was it also? the same in I swear we've seen this thing before not just murder clinic I want to say maybe murder by music but I could be wrong well you mean that particular the villa, villa Parisi yeah uh, there was another film oh there was one called uh, uh, some Dracula film with Udo Kier Okay. Shot there. And there was some recent, I think, British rom com or something that was shot there. I can't remember the name of that. Now, for this film, uh, were the interiors shot there too? Yeah, I'm pretty sure because in the scenes where the the housekeeper lady, Martha, is talking to the mother. If you look at the wall behind them, it has that kind of decorative painting that we saw in the murder clinic. Okay. The way the walls are decorated. And, um, that, you know, I didn't see that and think, oh my God, that's the murder clinic. I just saw it and I said, oh my God, these fucking people with the paint on the walls again, you know? And then it wasn't until <laughs> I read, I was doing the production right. notes that, uh, it's connected, so yeah. Uh, 
So that's a cool little connection. So yep. we have a lot of connections to Buyo Omega. We have a lot of connections to the murder clinic and one connection to uh, Top Sensation. So that's cool. The most important connection. Yeah. Oh, my God. If I work on... No, never mind. You can imagine. <laughs> if I was shooting that film, I'd be like, fuck, can we do that take again? Because, yeah, you right. know, this this last reel was overexposed. Or, oh, shit. Yeah. I, the batteries went out on my camcorder or whatever the hell. <laughs> and I'd be behind the camera wearing a bib and, you know, probably a steel girdle so I don't get fired. But... <laughs> So that's mostly the production notes, but I did mention that uh, it was produced in 65 and it wasn't released until June. That is because in February of 66, it hit a speed bump with the Italian censorship board. In his book, Italian Gothic Horror Films from 1957 to 1969, Roberto Curti wrote that in addition to many scenes of almost full female nudity and excessively graphic intercourses, plural, more than one. The film features episodes of necrophilia, close-ups of horrific scenes with blood and brutal violence, presented with real sadism and a protracted insistence which conveys a sense of complacency on the part of the makers. Hmm. So, we were wondering about different cuts of this film. And I, I don't, I, from what it reads like today, it sounds like there's a lot of stuff cut out of this movie because I don't really remember almost full female nudity. And I don't remember excessively graphic intercourses. But maybe their definitions for those terms were a little more uh, conservative in the past. But yeah, that's what I was thinking. I wonder if, um, what we're what we are watching now in the modern version of this, right? Or the latest version is the full uncut, and it it really, uh, it's just a different set of standards for the censors that they had back then compared to now. I don't know. I, I don't think there's a definitive director's cut other than, you know, what's been released recently, but right. And if they were worried about episodes of necrophilia in 1966, they should just wait till Joe D'Amato comes around. They'd lose their minds over some really? of these, uh, zombie films. But Well, that's the irony of it, right? That the, the film was, maybe the film was made with some excessive and gratuitous scenes of sex and necrophilia and they got cut out yeah. only to be, <laughs> only to be done 10 times worse. Right, maybe that's why Joe D'Amato did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> huh. Let's see. Buyo Mego came out in eighty, no, seventy nine. Was it? I think so. Yeah. So I wonder when all his uh, Island of the Horny Zombie movies came out. I wonder if that was before <laughs> or after. <laughs> that's a great way to. Um... Group those up. <laughs> oh, God, I just looked for him, now, and I'm seeing a picture of him. Oh, geez. God, I'm almost blushing just reading his list of film titles. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that this is 
at least the second time that necrophilia has come up in our discussions. If you remember the monster of Venice, right? The, the guy was embalming the girls and collecting them in his little uh, museum of hotties under the water. So anyway, uh, well, and we've- not, not to jump ahead, but there is a scene in this movie that reminds me a little bit of monster of Venice. There's a scene where, we find out that Mino is a taxidermist and he's got all these birds in these little, <laughs> like if you remember in uh, monster of Venice, the killer put all the women standing up in these right. like tombs. And mm-hmm. it's kind of laid out the exact same way in this film. And that's what it reminded me of. But anyway, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. Moving on to the cast. As we stated, we have Franco Nero, or Franco Nero. He was born in 1941 in the town of uh, San Prospero Parmense, which I'd never heard of, but uh, good for him. He's still kicking. (laughs) He has 242 acting credits beginning in 1962. And the same year that this came out, he was in a film called Django, which was a, well, is a classic spaghetti Western. And two years later, he was in a, a film called A Quiet Place in the Country, which I would say is at least a pseudo Jalo, but yes. I, I've seen that and it's pretty interesting. And a Jalo classic, The Fifth Chord from 1971. And. Obviously, the high point of his career, he was on an episode of Law and Order SVU in 2011. And uh, apparently Tarantino took enough pity on him to put him in Django Unchained to pull him out. Right. Of that. In this film, he plays the role of Mino, the uh, tortured young man that we will discuss quite a bit starting soon enough. <laughs> Okay, there is a housekeeper in this house because there are, um, I think the mother was a contessa or something like that. So there's a big house and obviously, you know, you can't dust your own furniture. So the housekeeper is a woman named Marta. She is played by Joya Pascal. There was no biographical information about her, but she was only in two films. And here's another connection. The year before this film came out, her first film, Joya Pascal's first film, was called Menage à l'Italiana, which means menage Italian style. And uh, if you have a junior high sense of humor, you probably know what menage refers <laughs> to. But in that movie, she co-starred with Romina Power, who we discussed back in the, uh, the Insatiables, or I forget what the other... And murder by music. Carnal, yeah. carnal circuit. Yeah, and murder by music. Yeah. Yep. So that uh that's starting to sound like it's itching towards my watch list right there. <laughs> okay. Mino is in love with a woman named Laura or Laura. She is played by Erica Blanc. And we've seen her before also. She was born in 1942 in the city of Brescia. 
She has 115 acting credits from 1964 all the way up to last year, so she might still be working. She was in the Bava film Kill Baby Kill, which came out this same year, 1966. She was in So Sweet, So Perverse from 1969, where she got to choke Carol Baker. So that sounds like fun. <laughs> she was in the ah, night. El- I'm starting to. I'm, okay. Now, now I, now I remember. Okay. Uh, choke Go Carol ahead, Baker snapped it into place for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that, I think I should edit that out. Shouldn't I? <laughs> oh, uh, she was in the night. Evelyn came out of the grave from 1971. And she was in the Spanish Jalo with Paul Nashi called The Dragonfly for Each Corpse in 1975. Mino's overbearing mother is played by a woman named Olga Solbelli. In this film, she's credited as Olga Sun Beauty because that is a very rough, sloppy translation of the word Solbelli. She was born in 1898 in the town of Vergareto, and she passed away in 1976 in Bologna. And considering, well, this is kind of a connection, but not really. That puts her in the ballpark of the butler from Psych Out for Murder, because I think he was born the same year or the year after. But her career started in 1936, which was a little bit before his. She has 87 acting credits between 36 and 67. And the only film on that list that I recognized was Mill of the Stone Women, which came out in 1960. And I wonder if she ever worked with the butler from Psych Out for Murder. I guess I could find out, but... Hmm. Uh, my boss wasn't paying me overtime, so I had to clock out before I could get to that. The Okay, Mino has a habit, or develops a habit, of bringing women home for uh, because he likes the company. One of them is a dancer that he sees at a nightclub. Uh, she is played by Marina Morgan. She was born in 43 in Rome. She has 11 acting credits between 65 and 91. And she took a big break between 71 and 91. But, uh, so she wasn't too big on the acting thing, I guess. Another lady that he brings home is played by Gara Granda. There's no biographical information about her. But she has seven acting credits between 65 and 1981, including a small part in 1968's Barbarella with Joan, no, Jane Fonda. Mm-hmm. Jane Fonda and John Philip Law, I think. So that's it. It's a pretty small cast. There are a couple other speaking part characters, but they're not really. Uh, too big in the story or on screen for right. very long. So that's all I've got. All right. Uh, very, very thorough, my friend. Thank you very much for all of that research and work. And like you said before, 
If there is a more incestuous group of uh, artists other than Italian filmmakers, I'm not aware of it. So, especially during this time period. Yeah. So this film, before we get into the scene-by-scene details, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you could watch this film. And it's not necessarily easy. Sometimes we do have a really good uh, free version available on YouTube or maybe even on Tubi that you can uh, access, uh, at least in America, because that's where I'm coming from. But the third eye is a little bit more... Uh, obscure. If you do a search for the third eye 1966, you will see that Prime, Google, YouTube, and Apple all offer rentals of the film. I'm not exactly sure what the source is for this. Uh, It may coincide with the Blu-ray that was released in 2022 by Arrow, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, but all of these are in Italian with subtitles. Uh, the version that I watched the very first time was a fan dub composite of two different sources. One being, I guess, an Italian version and the other being a German version. And the, the way that I really clued in on that was that at one point in the movie, the soundtrack of the speaking, the, you know, the speaking language soundtrack switched to German out of nowhere. Now the subtitles didn't change because it was I was watching in English. So, but it was an important uh, an important distinction that I did notice. And um, now there is let's see a YouTube version of the film. Uh, in its entirety, but there are no subtitles at all. So if you want to watch the film and you speak Italian or you understand Italian, uh, or you just want to watch it for the image aspects of it, and maybe you can just, after you listen to us (laughs) detail all the scenes, you can basically just already know what's going to happen. So there's that. But in nine, uh, I'm sorry, in 2022, Arrow Films released a four-part Blu-ray set called Gothic Fantastico, Four Italian Tales of Terror. And the third eye is one of the four. Now, you're going to ask me, what are the other three? Well, Chris, uh, well, everybody, (laughs) I didn't look that up. Let's look it up now, and I'll just edit this shit out later. Four Italian Tales of Terror, the other three... Uh, Lady Morgan's Vengeance, The Blancherville Monster, The Third Eye, and The Witch. I think, to for the most part, this set is, you know, gothic horror, but The Third Eye often pops up in Jalo lists, especially because it's so early in the history of Jalo films. We can talk later about whether we think this actually is a giallo or not. Um, but that we'll, we'll leave that for later. But at any rate, if you're interested in seeing this version of the film, which is a Blu-ray and looks fantastic, you can only get it by buying the box set or being a pirate, um, <laughs> which that's as much as I'll say. 
one of the cool uh, things about the Blu-ray is that it has a commentary track by Rachel Nisbet, who is responsible for the Hypnotic Crescendos blog that we used to uh, quote from time to time, as well as the podcast called Fragments of Fear, I believe it was called. Huh. Um, so kudos to her for getting involved in doing this. I haven't seen the film with that commentary track yet, but I'll, I will try to watch it very soon. Now, just to add a little bit more confusion to this, um, apparently, you know, it, when we go back to the version that I originally watched, which was a fan dub of two different versions. The description of this fan dub says, this film was taken mainly from the German widescreen print and redubbed to Italian and adding the missing scenes from the Italian print. So apparently there's an Italian version of this that has a bunch of extra scenes, but the German version was a better visual quality and included the proper aspect ratio of 1.85 to 1. So this fan dub takes that as its main visual with the Italian soundtrack, but also all of the missing scenes that I guess came from the Italian version, which is a lower fidelity, um, were edited back in. And this is a version that I downloaded online. It's a, like I said, it's a fan dub. There's also one small scene that has German audio, which I mentioned earlier. Um, now, I noticed all this when I was watching it. There are a few scenes where all of a sudden the fidelity of the film takes a major uh, dive downward. And the, the you know, it's, it's just much more muted and lower fidelity and, and darker. And it's only there for uh, several scenes. But I think some of the scenes, as we get get to and I'll point them out as we get through the scene by scene are pretty important and I'm going when I'm watching this I'm going why was this cut I mean it's not violent and it's not sexual so and the film is already only a hundred uh, you know an hour and 24 minutes or 27 so it's not like they were trying to cut it for runtime so I'm not really sure why all these scenes are missing but we'll we can talk about it later when we get there it's it's at the end so it's not it's not something that happens in the beginning. Okay, so this fan dub version that you're talking about, is that what you're working off of for this podcast? Or No. Uh, actually, what I... Yeah, so I, the first time I watched it, I watched the fan dub, and the second time I watched it, in order to do the scene-by-scene, scene, I watched a extract of the Blu-ray that came out last year. Okay. And yeah, that's, the, that's what I the other... The other interesting thing about the Blu-ray that came out last year is that there is an English language soundtrack. And most important to this English language soundtrack is that the actor who plays Marta, it appears that she's doing her lines in English. If you huh. watch the film and you watch her lip movements with the English language soundtrack on, it syncs up almost all the time. So I don't really understand how this was produced I mean, obviously they didn't record any sound on the set, but um, the actress who plays Marta does not look American or English speaking to me, 
but apparently, you know, that's that was the language she re- she did her lines in. Um, okay. The other well, thing that I want to bring. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Her name is Joya Pascal. In Joya, the way it's written is very Italian. Uh, Pascal is not exactly an Italian name because it's kind of missing at least one vowel. A vowel. At the end. Yeah, right. yeah. But yeah, you're right. She looked. She was the most Italian looking. Well, okay, I forgot about the mother. She was the second most <laughs> Italian looking person in this film. Right. Yeah. So interestingly, if you go back and, and watch the English language version, you'll notice for sure that she's you know speaking English when she's doing her lines. Um, one of the other things that's important to notice is that, and I, I'm pretty sure that this was from the rip that I got of the Blu-ray, there are two different subtitle tracks. One subtitle track matches the English language track exactly and the other okay. subtitle track is a translation of the Italian language. And there are a few differences that I noticed and a couple of them that, or at least one of them that's really important to the story um, hmm. as far as a di- as far as differences. But it, again, it's towards the end. So, okay. Um, okay. So that's all of my preamble before we start talking about the scene by scene. And uh, again, like I said, if you haven't seen the film, there's lots of places to find it, but none of them are free unless, like I said, you want to be a pirate. (laughs) And um, the YouTube version has no subtitles or anything. So be aware. Uh, So let's get into the the film. And when the film starts out, I know we didn't really talk. We haven't, because we've been doing Proto Giallo for so long, we really don't get into the to the music and because i think that the the music for these films prior to say you know the argento years are kind of um not an afterthought but they're just they're they're atmospheric they don't really contribute a lot to the film as much as say a film with goblin you know doing the soundtrack like when when Goblin does the soundtrack, it's almost as if there's another character in the film, which is the soundtrack. But um, in this particular case, the soundtrack is kind of overlooked, but I thought it was well-written. And like you said, um, it's the same um, composer that we see for New York Ripper, which is in the 80s, but also um, The Murder Clinic. And I think one other one that you mentioned that I forgot already. The Weekend Murders. Weekend Murders, okay. And The Weekend Murders, uh, I th- I'm pr- if I remember correctly, The Weekend Murders soundtrack was built on or based on uh, a classical piece, but I guess it was embellished to be used throughout the, the film. But I digress. Uh, so we are treated to these opening credits, and we're initially shown this idyllic kind of pastoral scene, a lot of wide angle shots of this woman walking through the fields, holding a big bouquet of flowers. We do see the, um, the villa uh, right in the beginning. And then we also see um, our hero, (laughs) 
um, Mino uh, pacing around back and forth, looking like he's losing his patience or just waiting for something. Um, the soundtrack during this, in you know this the, this introductory credit se- sequence is very. It's you know, in general the the soundtrack is made by is composed using symphonic instruments. There's no synthesizers. There's no modern. Uh, you know, you don't hear drums or anything like that. So it's very much a classical soundtrack. But this part of it reminds you of, you know, like Beethoven's sixth and, you know, just that whole like pastoral, idyllic, you know, out in the uh, in the beauty of nature kind of thing, uh, which will change very quickly. But um, I thought it was an interesting opening credit sequence because... A lot of the jolly that we talk about, sometimes there's an opening scene and then we get to the credits. Sometimes the credits are merely just a bunch of titles on a screen with music playing or maybe some abstract uh, artwork or something. But in this case, we're really getting a sense here of the, you know, setting the pay, uh, setting the uh, setting the scene. We see the uh, the character Laura. She's running through the fields. We see Mino's pacing back and forth. We see the surroundings and the environment. And then eventually, after the last of the credits are done, we see Marta, uh, who's looking out the window at Laura, who's walking around gathering flowers. And then, of course, the credits end and we get into the beginning of the movie. Before we go on, I guess anything out that struck you as interesting from this opening sequence? Not so much for itself, but it kind of the difference between this and the opening for the last film that we did, the uh, Adol for Satan or Adol right. of Satan, where it had the uh, well, the very different music and just kind of stills from the film and some collage work done. I was uh, pleasantly surprised that this film, it uses the time of the opening credits to kind of introduce you to the characters and to set a mood. And nobody says a word, but we get a pretty good sketch of the two personalities that are involved. And we see that uh, Franco Nero is kind of impatient and maybe uh, not the most pleasant person in the world because he has a scowl on his face the whole time. Yeah. And this woman is happy go lucky. And, uh, we don't understand the situation yet, but she seems like a lot more fun to hang out with than he does so far. And that leads right into, the third character that we meet, which is Marta, and by then the the credits are done and the dialogue starts, and we get to meet two more characters. And I thought that was pretty efficient use of time, and uh, I liked it. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think efficient use of time is definitely the best way to describe it because this story doesn't. It's not really intricate. There's not a lot going on. And they're trying to, you know, fill um, 
a runtime. Well, they're not they're not using the credits as an excuse to pad anything. That's a good point. Okay, so we're introduced to Marta, and I'm going to just validate that my knowledge of the Italian language is good, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in English, you would say Martha, but because right. you don't pronounce the H in Italian, it's Marta. Well, it's spelled without the H in Italian also. Oh, yeah. okay. But is there a name, is there a Martha name that's in Italian? Like, in other words, like, uh, you know, my son's name is Anthony, but in Spanish, he's Antonio. So is Martha right. in English considered Marta in Italian? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And again, um, I noticed that before uh, because one of the characters in Argento's Deep Red is named Marta or Martha. So it's not the first time that this name has been used. But um, also, I noticed that I don't know if you've ever watched Mad Men, the TV show, but the the character of Laura reminds me of January Jones's character, which is the Betty Draper character. Um, oh yeah, she's very blonde. She's very high cheekbone. She's very, you know, waspy looking. I guess you could say, or Anglo mm-hmm. looking. She doesn't look Italian for sure. Yeah, um, and she's beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. So, anyway, the next scene we see Marta and the Countess, and right away we find out that the Countess doesn't like Laura. Um, and Marta says, well, you know, why did you approve of this marriage between her and Mino if you don't like her? But uh, Marta says, um, it hasn't happened yet. You know, so I, I'm not approving of it. I'm just letting it happen and we'll see what happens. Um, but that's a, a very quick scene. We find out much, we find out a lot more about the Countess and her thoughts and feelings about Laura a little bit later on, but right away we're introduced to the fact that there's this kind of schism going on in the family. So after this scene, Laura arrives at the front of the house where Mino is standing and pacing back and forth and he's mad at her. And he says, why did you take so long? I've been waiting for you. And Laura says, Hey, I was out collecting flowers for your mother. Like, you know, give me a break. I'm trying to make a good impression here. (laughs) And, um, so they walk into the house and Mino follows behind Laura. Um, and Laura gives the flowers to Marta and says, you know, give these to the countess. Um, or actually, I think she comes in and she says, is the countess, where's the countess or is the countess available or whatever? And Marta says, no, she's not, a, she's not around. She's, she's indisposed. And so Laura says, please give these to her. So, um, after she walks away, there's this very quick uh, exchange of looks between Mino and Marta. And Marta gives him like this little quick smile, but he doesn't return it. And he walks off and pursues Laura a little bit uh, further. Right. That um, was an interesting smile that she gave. Yeah. Which- yeah and like n- knowing, knowing <clears throat> what happens throughout the movie... Mm-hmm. You, 
you know, you now know that that smile was, hey, um, she's interested in Mino to a certain extent. Um, I don't know if she's in love with him or if she just sees him as a means to escape her servitude or servitude, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Uh, You're so cynical. <laughs> it's love. Um, she has pined away for this rich, spoiled asshole her whole life. And it's, <laughs> it's pure. Come on. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry for being cynical. Uh, I live in 2023. Um, yeah. uh, well, she's no anyway, saint. Marta, we find out. So. Marta, let's see. Oh, she tears up the flowers. That's true. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mino and Laura continue their discussion in the hallway. Mino apologizes and he asks Laura, hey, come check out our new room. Laura's like, no, nah, I don't really want to. And then he kind of talks her into it. So they, they walk in through this door and we then cut to the countess in her room who pulls back a painting, which is actually a door that reveals a little peephole that she can look into to see what's going on in the other room. And of course, you know, at this point, we're going to have to say, look, there's a lot of Alfred Hitchcock psycho references here. Um, oh, gee, and yeah, was, and we're only like five minutes in, and we're getting yeah. slapped in the face with Hitchcock, and yeah. it, it's going to get worse, or better, <laughs> depending on... The first it's time I saw this, I, I told myself, you know, if somebody had showed me this and said, this was Brian De Palma's high school art project, I'd be like, of course it was. Because- <laughs> <laughs> you imagine Brian De Palma being alive when... Um, Franco Nero is, I think it, when he made this movie, I think I did the calculations. He was like 26 years old. So he looks very young. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, obviously we also have the mother, you know, in general, that's certainly a psycho mm-hmm. thing and the old house. Um, so while the countess is spying on them through the peephole in the room, You know, we see this room and it's clearly still under construction or being renovated. There's newspaper and drop cloths everywhere. I think there's things are being painted and what have you. So uh, the idea here is that once they're married, this is where they're going to stay and make up their marriage bed, which is conveniently located right next to mom's. Yeah. uh, Right on the peephole. Yeah, exactly. And how (laughs) creepy is that? It's very creepy. yeah. I can understand Norman Bates taking a look at Marion Crane, okay? But the mother watch. Uh. Yeah. Well, an and then Marta thing. comes up like, okay. oh, I'll take a peek too. <laughs> it's like, what the hell right. is going on in this house? So, yeah, but that's funny because Marta wants to look too, but the countess says, hey, shut that door. You're not allowed Are to look at Some there. kind of perv. <laughs> <laughs> So um, the countess tells Marta, oh, Marta says something about how they were arguing and the countess says, oh, they've probably already resolved that argument by now. And Marta complains about how hard she works, um, how she gets up early every morning. um, But then she kind of starts to taunt the, the countess by saying, well, at least after the marriage, I'll have one less bed that I'm going to have to make up because Laura will be doing that. And this kind of 
catapults the countess whose name we never actually really get, right? We just know that she's the countess. I just have her written down as mama. So or Mrs. And- um what's the last name? Is it it starts with an A. Oh shit. Uh, is it Albini, see. possibly? He is we only he, you only really hear it towards Alberti. the end of the Alberti, okay. Yeah. So Countess Alberti, I guess is her name. Yeah. Um so this kind of triggers the countess to sit down and kind of begin lamenting, you know. Um she's not happy with the idea of this marriage. She doesn't want it to happen. And then she says something about um I wish I could find someone to get rid of Laura. I wish I could get rid of This is where the the subtitles and the soundtrack kind of differ. They talk well, about um they talk about Laura having an accident. Um but that's I don't think that's in the English language version. It's it's more generalized in the English language version about her, you know, getting getting rid of her or somebody could get rid of her or something like that. Right. Were well, you gonna right say? before that, as Marta's making the bed and she's already started kind of uh, passive aggressively uh, poking back at mama. Okay. She says, let's see exactly what does she say? I'm just reading the subtitles cause I don't want the audio to, you know, blend in with the conversation. Sure. sure. Uh, so she says, and the bride will take care of making the marital bed knife twist, knife twist. And then right. Mama comes walking over and sits on the bed. My God. Shit. Maybe I skipped it. Only too far. Oh, there it is. After Before that, she says, after the wedding, I don't think your son will be sleeping in your room. <laughs> ah. So. I didn't catch I mean, that before. I mean, hell, they're at Villa Parisi. Find another room, you know. Right. Find out where the, that doctor kept the guinea pig and move in there. But he's... uh. So it sounds like he parks a bed or rolls one of those little rollaway cots or something into his mother's room to sleep. I don't think your son will be sleeping in your room. Or does he sleep with her in the bed? Well, she's... Jeez, I don't know. Well, she says I'll have one less bed to make. And if the wife is making the bed that they sleep in... And she'll have one bed, so one more would be two. So I assume there's like a... I don't really see a second bed in this room. Yeah, my guess... The way I interpreted that was Mino and Laura are sleeping separately. Mino has his own bed. Laura has hers. And Marta has to make up both of them. Okay, so if they're sleeping separately for now meaning at you know the time of the scene right here, that would be three beds that Marta has to make, right? Right. And she says, after the wedding, I'll have one less bed to make. 
But then she says, because the wife will be making, the bride will take care of making the marital bed. Right. So why is she not saying I'll have two less beds to make? Right. Right. Well, as the kids say, the math ain't math. Enough, so. <laughs> so basically what we're left with, regardless of the math and regardless of the subtitles in the language, is that the countess kind of makes a suggestion that it would be great if somebody did something to get rid of Laura. And Marta takes it upon herself to take responsibility for this request. And we don't see that right away, but we will see it eventually. And, you know, again, we need to know that Marta's, we need to, we, we need to reinforce that Marta's motives are that she's trying to elevate herself, right? She's trying to go, you know, rise above the servant, you know, life that she's been living all of her life, which we find out very soon. Um, right. But again, the countess really doesn't come out and say, Hey, you should kill her. Um, and, you know, the ambiguity of whether or whether she did or didn't suggest to do anything to Laura comes up in, in a little bit. But at this point, that's kind of what we get out of this. So, well, she's as bad as Livia Soprano. The oh, way she says yes. things without saying them. Right. Yes. I mean, she just sits down right next to Marta and says, gee, if only something would happen to that bitch who's <laughs> trying to steal my daughter. I mean, my son. If only, oh, if I could get rid of her, I'd give anything. Nudge, nudge. <laughs> but I, I didn't I really, say anything. I, I really appreciate the Livia Soprano um, reference because, um, yeah, it's that kind of passive aggressive Italian mother thing. And yeah. um, I don't have an Italian mother, but I had an Italian grandmother, and I certainly. Uh, experienced the passive aggressive stuff. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of grandmothers, the the mother here in this film, the way she's dressed and the way her hair is and her earrings and the single chain around her neck. Remember, I told you the story about my great grandmother who died, and then we kept her body in the house for a few days. Yeah, yeah. She looked exactly like that. Wow. And when I was doing the production notes, when I looked up this actress, I thought, oh, wow, she was born in 80, I mean, 1898. Let me see if I can find some old movie images of her, see what she looked like when she was younger. Almost all, meaning like nine out of 10 of the pictures I found of her as a young woman, she was dressed exactly the same. Oh, oh my <laughs> so, God. So I'm thinking, holy shit, did Italian women not discover colors and hairstyles until like the 50s or something? And, I guess. But every time she gets up and walks around, it, to me, she's the spitting image. I mean, she could play my great-grandmother in a movie. Wow. Just as she Jeez. is right now. Well, I was think? convinced. I was convinced when I was a kid that when my mother was around, the world was in black and white. So, yeah. Like... Just like of course it was. TV. I saw it on TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. Um, so the next scene, we have Laura and Mino. They're continuing to discuss what's going on between them. 
Laura says that she doesn't feel comfortable with the Countess and Marta. Um, she doesn't really want to live in the house after they're married. And Mino, he's very conflicted. You know, he wants to, he wants to appease his young bride, but he doesn't want to disappoint his mother. He doesn't really know what to do at this point. Um, so there's a scene after this where Mino goes into the room where the Countess is sitting. And she says that, you know, Laura has come between them, but Mino swears that he still loves his mother. Uh, the Countess says, you know, you basically, basically says, hey, you should break it off with her. And Mino says, no, I'm not going to. Um, and leaves the room. Now, the very next scene, we get another psycho nod, which is the taxidermy. The owl is like the front and center on the, we cut, yeah, excuse me, the, the, the next cut is directly to the owl who's kind of, you know, sitting up in the, in the, in not, you know, in the top area of the, uh, of the room, like towards the ceiling. And we see this taxidermy lab uh, with all of these various birds. Like I was saying, it reminds me of uh, Naked You Die. No, I'm sorry. It reminds me of um, the embalmer with all these little uh, compartments of dead birds instead of dead, you know, women. Right. But... Um, and now that I think about it, in Naked You Die, there was that professor that had his own little, I don't know, like his own little study or something that had yeah. all the bugs that were pinned to, yes. I don't know, yep. styrofoam or something. And the, the first time I saw this, we're seeing all the birds and we're hearing the chirping. And I was thinking, what kind of low budget bullshit is this? Is this supposed to be a room full of live birds and they just <laughs> couldn't afford a, a Tweety Wrangler or something? Because these birds aren't fucking alive. <laughs> but then I, I noticed a little bit later there are live birds. But Well, that and that's the weird thing. Like, Mino keeps live birds inside the room where he eventually <laughs> kills them, rips their guts out, and stuffs them. That's so creepy. Like, Dude, ew. that's an even scarier horror movie than this is. Yeah. Can you imagine absolutely. being one of those birds? Like, oh, fuck. <laughs> what? And, uh. But I think in Psycho, it's not spelled out that Norm... Well, I guess... Do they ever say that Norm does the, uh, the taxidermy himself? Oh yeah, those so the scene with okay. Marion Crane where they're eating sandwiches in right. the um in, you know behind the lobby. Right, yeah, yeah. He's like what he's like would you join me I'll bring you down some sandwiches and then um there's a there's a classic line where Norman Bates says uh you know the the old saying eats like a bird is actually a fa fa falsity. He, do, he stutters and he uh -huh. said, because birds eat a tremendous lot. And then Marion Crane says, well, you would know. And she kind of glances up and he goes, I don't know about birds. I, my hobby is stuffing things, you know, taxidermy. Oh, so okay. it's been a while yeah. since I've seen that. Yeah. So, the, so he definitely is identified as a taxidermist 
And so I I think, again, we've got the same kind of how many different times can we use psycho as inspiration, but, um, and later we'll get like a vertigo inspiration, but, um, I don't want to get there yet. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I thought I'd bring it up just to tickle your ass with a feather as they say. So, um, speaking of birds, speaking of birds, right. It all comes back. Um, so one of the cool things that I noticed about this scene before we leave it is that, you know, Marta is in the lab. She's cleaning the instruments. She's polishing the scalpel and stuff. Like, I guess it's, yeah. it's part of her duties as the maid to like clean everything up. And then Mino walks in and uh, let's see. And he's like, what are you doing in here? But there's this, sh- there's this, there's this uh, camera shot where um, it's it's an overhead wide angle shot. And it's almost as if one of the birds is looking down on this scene. And I thought it was really cool the way that they did yeah. that. Uh, especially when you consider that some of the birds in here are alive. Uh, they're mm-hmm. not all stuffed and dead. But even if it was just all stuffed and dead birds, you know, it would be the idea that, you know, here's this bird Were you- that's... Were you faked out by the stuffed white cat on the table? Faked out meaning, did I think it was real? Well, did you think it was the same cat that we just saw mom playing with? Oh, no, I didn't even think of that. Okay. And that cat does not want to be held. (laughs) The first time we see the mother and she's holding the cat and she's supposed to be pretending like oh i'm just a little old you know old lady sitting here petting my cat and that cat is struggling to get away <laughs> watching it the second time i thought well there's your metaphor right there mino's yeah, there's the cat, cat. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah just... absolutely but when they come into here and they're pa- scan you know uh panning across all the stuffed birds in those cases. And then it hits the table and that white cat's there. I'm thinking, Oh shit, that cat's going to try to, I don't know, try to catch one of these stuffed. And then it didn't move. And I was like, Oh shit, did somebody (laughs) stuff the cat? And then I thought, no wonder that cat was scared shitless in the first, well, the second scene. Right. Right. He probably wanders around the house and sees a stuffed cat on the table and, He's talking to the birds like, do you see this shit? And they're like, yeah, we should all get out of here. Right, right. That would be like the the spinoff movie of this movie. The the birds and the cat come to life and we can get voice actors to do the animal voices and they escape. Yeah. It's like Milo and Otis. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It'd be like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of... <laughs> oh my gosh nowhere else ladies and gentlemen will you get this kind of commentary i'm telling you uh anyway um so on the next scene we have laura and she is um getting ready to take her bath and you know she mm-hmm. is really the the definition of i don't know what i, I don't know how to describe her like she you know, her hair is up in a towel, so we don't see, you know, I, I, let me, let me interrupt my own train of thought with another thing. There was a, I'm trying to remember who came up with this, but 
in order to tell whether someone was truly beautiful or not, they called it the Rosanna Rosanna Dana test. And, you know, I'm really dating myself because Rosanna Rosanna Dana was a Gilda (laughs) Ratner character on Saturday Night Live in the 70s. And she had the worst haircut. Like it was just frizzy beyond belief or something like that. And so the idea was if you put your hands up to the screen and block out the hairstyle of the person you're looking at, if they're still good looking, then they really are good looking. And that was the Rosanna Rosanna Dana test because she had terrible hair. Um, But I don't remember Gilda Radner being that attractive anyway. But anyway, that's... Yeah, I was about to say, I, I mean... She was a wonderful comedian and everything. Right. But but not super attractive. Well, I don't know, because I've never... I don't know. Anytime I think about Gilda Radner, that's the image that pops in my head. I right. I don't know if I've seen... I mean, I've seen her in a few other sketches from that show. I haven't seen any of her movies. Like, there was a movie she did with uh, Gene Wilder. I think yeah. shortly before she passed away, but I didn't watch it, but was it hanky panky? Yeah. 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 I saw that I ages ago. Yep. So was she prettier in that? Well, I, I mean, think she, that she, in, yeah, I think that in general, if you look up Rosanna, Rosanna, Dana's picture on uh-huh. Google, you'll see how ridiculous her hair was. Well, it's not and, just that she's kind of contorting her face and she's yeah. doing some, some uh, expression work to kind of fit that character. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, so if we imagine Erica Blanc with Rosanna, Rosanna Dana's hair. Right. Yeah. She's still yeah. gorgeous. Okay. So, I mean, like my point yeah. is, you know, she doesn't have any hair in this scene. She just, it's all wrapped up in a towel. Um, yeah. But her face is just absolutely flawless. I mean, I think she was in her 20s when they filmed this. So, I mean, it should be. (laughs) But one of the things that was very (laughs) disappointing is that when she decides to take her top off, the camera also decides to zoom in on her face. And it stays there until she gets into the bathtub, which is really, really disappointing. But anyway. No wonder this movie only made a million bucks. (laughs) so as she's sitting in the bathtub marta comes in because i think at the end of the previous scene mino says something about go help laura with her bath or something like that um yeah the details of what is being said are going to be definitely up for discussion because between the, the various soundtracks and the various subtitle tracks we really don't know um what people are saying but Marta comes in and tries to relax her by giving her a massage on the neck and then scrubbing her back. And initially, Laura is like, I'm not into this. You need to leave. But then she kind of starts to relax a little bit and asks Marta, like, what's her deal? So Marta takes this opportunity to give a quick life story, um, telling about how her father was the main caretaker and he was best friends with the Count and the both, you know, both of them died in a hunting accident. Now, I thought something was going to come of this. You know, I thought that we were going to get some sort of flashback or something. But really, it's just a backstory to say that 
the the main caretaker and the count both died at the same time, which basically set up the relationship between the countess and Mino to be kind of, you know, a lot more, uh, you know, a, a little bit more of an unhealthy mother-son relationship than it should be. And I mm-hmm. think she says something like, the countess and her son have been inseparable ever since the accident. So, um, Laura says, well, this is going to change once we get married. And Marta says, don't count on it. And, uh, <laughs> Laura says, you know what? I'm going to get the fuck out of here early because I can't stand being in here with you people anymore. So, um, one of the things that, uh, I start, to realize, I don't know if I started to realize it at this point or maybe earlier, or maybe later upon my first viewing is that Marta is really also very beautiful. Um, but she's understated. I mean, she clearly doesn't look anything like Laura, like Laura's got the, you know, uh, high cheekbone Anglo-Saxon kind of look. And Marta has more of a Mediterranean Italian look, but Marta is gorgeous. Um, as yeah, well. Erica Blanc has the like, movie star beauty mm-hmm. and uh joya pascal or marta has the girl next door type beauty yeah especially if your next door is in italy like you said <laughs> but I'd... yeah as it was as the movie goes on i was thinking more about how attractive Marta is compared to Erica Blanc because I'd seen Erica Blanc in films before and I guess I'd kind of gotten used to how she looks. Yes. Well, besides that, um, her hairstyle changes uh, after this bath scene and also when her sister shows up later in the movie um, Mm -hmm. and it kind of detracts from her looks a little bit. Like I'm not a big fan of her, you know, short, you know, like the kind of like the, the mid, the mid length, I don't know what you call that, but, uh, it's not short. It's not a pixie cut and it's not long. It's the in between, right. but, um, so when this, when the, when that scene started, do you think they were trying to give us a, uh, an injection of suspense because we had just seen mama telling Marta that, oh, I sure wouldn't mind if something bad happened to get rid of that bitch. And then we see her in the, well, they call it the laboratory. And she's fingering, or she's cleaning that scalpel. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at the wrong time. (laughs) No, no. Certain words just pop in my head when I see two women near a bathtub together. But Yeah, right, right. <laughs> okay, so we saw her with the scalpel. We know that she's pretty much got the marching orders. Do me a favor and kill this bitch. Right. And then she goes in there, and it didn't hit me until just now watching it again. Oh, were we supposed to be on edge about that? Like, oh my God, is she going to slit her throat in the bathtub or something? And I know I think maybe that kind of got sidetracked when she started to give her massage. Cause then I started thinking about that scene from, uh, double face. Remember that? Oh yeah. 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 Right. Klaus Kinski's wife and that chick in the bathtub. Yeah. So, 
but they were more hey. in cahoots than uh, against each other in that movie. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, it's well, funny yeah. you bring that up because we will never know the answer to this, but um, the, the contemporary audience for this film, when Marta comes over to Laura in the bathtub, like you said, were they immediately thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be the scene where... You know, yeah, she because she's, she's kind of telling her, go away, get out of here. I don't need you. Oh, I'm, let me wash your back. Oh, let me, oh, you're, you need to get yeah. relaxed. And then she gets behind her, and you can tell even uh, Laura's nervous or upset. And we know in Jalo world, bad things happen in bathtubs all the time. Absolutely. So. There's even a Jalo score criteria point for a bathtub murder. So, I mean, you know, come on. Yeah. Oh, so close. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's the same. Then we cut to something completely different. No pun intended. Yes. I mean, as completely different as you can think of. But what I found funny about this is here's a scene where Mino is gutting this bird that he's obviously about to stuff. And right after that, we see a pair of hands come in underneath the car um, and perform some sort of cutting of the, you know, something gets cut and some fluid falls out. And I mean, we're supposed to assume it's brake fluid. And then the camera zooms out and we see that it's Marta on her hands and knees laying on the ground underneath the car. I mean, this, this, this woman... With the door wide like, open in front of full view of everybody. I would love I mean, to not have that her. there's that many people there. Right. Well, that, yeah, exactly. There's not that many. Um, I would love to have her as a maid. Like she can do everything. She can. Oh, hell she can yeah. Give, she can give baths. She can clean instruments. She can, she can um, do work under your car. She can she get gets rid of hotter bodies. every minute. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So those two scenes go pretty quickly. I, I'm not exactly sure what is the real purpose or point of showing Mino kind of eviscerating this bird. I don't know. Um, just in case you didn't know yet, he's a taxidermist, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, I, maybe just to gross you out or just to kind of you know, put that thought in your head about death and violence and grossness. And I didn't appreciate that scene at all. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was eating chicken. When the scene started. <laughs> That's not good. And no, I look down and I see like the, the drumstick bone laying on my plate. And I was just like, fucking hell. <laughs> Yeah, definitely don't watch usually... cannibal films when you're eating dinner, right? Well, if it was a cannibal film and I was eating a person, I'd be like, <laughs> oh, that's kind of gross. But I'm eating a chicken and this guy's cutting open a bird and I'm sitting there yeah. thinking, what? You know, like you said, why Why are we seeing this? And it's like the camera zooms into the, the carcass of that bird and I, to the yeah. point where I'm wondering, is that real or did they fake it up or... Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. Is that a real bird? Did that was that really bird guts? 
Yeah. Because, you know, the whole idea of animal cruelty and, you know, the, the, the welfare of animals and the usage of animals on film, like that really hadn't been invented yet. You know, it was kind yeah, of like I, a, I think in 66, nobody gave a shit because they yeah, were still tripping cared. horses and Westerns and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but anyway, well, once that scene is over, we have this really, really odd and uncomfortable scene between Laura and the countess where she walks in to tell her, hey, I'm leaving early. Uh, I'm not going to be here for dinner. The countess says, basically says, oh, that's a really good excuse. Um, back in the old days, uh, people used to just <laughs> say that they didn't feel well when they wanted to leave early. But now they make up a lie about their sister coming from college. And... Laura is just like, what the, f- what the, are you crazy? Like, what are you saying? And then and the she says is- it even a little more condescending than that. She says in the past, if a servant wanted to leave. Right. Calls her so a she's kind of, compa- yeah, it's like, bitch, I'm going to be your daughter-in-law. Right. Until, well, you know. Not for but, long. Yeah. Yeah. She's just open face. Like being, giving her bitch bitchitude or whatever you call it and <laughs> and it, again back to the sopranos it reminded me of that one time tony was talking to uh uh his psychiatrist whatever her name oh melfi dr melfi right he says back in the old times they would smile to your face and then make sure you got it in the back later <laughs> yeah it's, it's like that's what she's doing yes well, and then she does this passive aggressive thing where she says, because I guess Laura is like taken aback by like the fact that she compared her to a servant or accused her of making up a story to leave early. And then she says, oh, don't worry, dear. I only mean half of what I say. And then she says something about the other half. And I can't remember what she said about that, but it's like there, there's a there's an interesting connection between the fact that the countess, at least for me, the fact that the countess has admitted that she only means half of what she says. And does that connect back to the fact that she suggested to Marta that somebody should get rid of Laura? And did she really mean that? Or was, is she going to say, Oh, I didn't really mean that, you know? Um, I was just talking like, you know, cause later on we, we see that a little bit of an argument between the two of them that may be related to the fact that, um, Marta admits to the countess that she fixed the brakes or that she's, you know, that she screwed, that she cut the brake line. It's, okay. it's, um, it's a couple of scenes later. And the first time I watched the film, I got the impression that when they cut in to Marta and the countess talking, that Marta had already told the countess off screen that what she did with the breaks. And then there that's, they come into the scene with them arguing, but um, before any of that happens, we have a scene where Mino is in the lab and 
Marta comes to tell him that dinner is ready and he's like, um, you know, where's Laura? And Marta says, oh, she left already. And Mino just, you know, runs out, the, runs out of the house to try and catch up with her, even though his mother is like, no, stop, come back, come back. But after that scene is when Marta and the Countess start arguing. And I could have sworn that, or the impression I got was that Marta was angry at, I'm sorry, the Countess was angry at Marta. And we don't really know why they're arguing, but it feels as if maybe Marta said, hey, you know, I did what you told me to do. I cut the brake line and she's going to be gone. And now she's saying, oh, I never said that or I never suggested that or whatever. And I think that all of that ties back to her saying to Laura before she walks out the door about how, you know, I only mean half of what I say. So I don't know. Maybe I'm looking too far into it, but that's that's what I got out of it. It was like, you know, this, this again, the, the passive-aggressive Italian mother who's making suggestions, but then as soon as, you know, Livia did the same thing. She said to, she told Junior, you know, to kill, basically to kill Tony in the first season of The Sopranos. And then Mm -hmm. when there was an attempt on Tony's life, you know, um, and it, and it, and it got botched and Junior is like freaking out because he's like, oh my God, my, you know, my nephew's going to come after me. And Livia's like, oh, well, I told you so. And you shouldn't have done that. And he was like, what was, was your idea? And she's like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. So it's like all this whole gaslighting, passive aggressive thing. Um, Yeah. It's, uh, it's like a combination of creating plausible deniability with a twist of gaslighting and yeah. And it is all served on a plate of passive aggression. (laughs) (laughs) With a, with, with, with a sprinkle of, of bird guts on top, you know, just, yeah. And to keep it Italian, sprinkle some oregano across it. Yeah. You're all good. A little Parmigiana, Parmigiano. Yeah. What do they say? What is it? What's what's the second word they use for Parmesan? Parmigiano, uh, Reggiano, or yeah, yeah, that's it. That's what I'm looking for, Reggiano. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) so do you think the mother really is like that? She doesn't know what she's saying half the time, or do you think she's being cold and calculating and knows damn well everything she's doing, or how? Yeah, yeah, I think it's the second one, but I think that she she offers up enough. like she she has a, a certain way of conducting her herself to make people say, well, maybe she's old and doesn't know what she's saying. But meanwhile, she mm-hmm. does, you know. Or, you know, it could be a way to dodge a favor. Because the way she was saying, gee, I wish something would happen to this bitch to get her away from my son, nudge, nudge. That's kind of implying that you want someone to do a favor for you namely Marta. Right. But then you're going to owe Marta a favor later. 
But if you can get Marta to go through with what you want her to do, and then you can say, oh, I don't know. I didn't say that. I don't remember. I was crazy. I'm old and senile or whatever. You can't hold me to that. Then you can get what you want without having to reciprocate later. Exactly. Yep. Because it's not like she point blank said, hey, get rid of this bitch and I'll let you marry my son. I'll push yeah. him right into your arms and then I'll peek through the hole every night and watch him bang your brains out. And then you'll still <laughs> come in here and make my bed in the fucking morning, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she didn't She didn't uh, flat out explain it that way. She's very much yeah. being manipulative and... and uh, yeah, she's yeah. too uh, close to the best with all that stuff. Right, right. Close to the shawl. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, again, we have the scene where Mino is like, "What the fuck? He, she left. What are you crazy? Um, I'm gonna go run after her." So he leaves, and the next scene, the Countess and Margu are uh, the, the Countess and Marta are arguing. I said Margu, which is Marta and arguing <laughs> together. Uh, arguing Mar- with Marta, yeah, Margu. <laughs> <laughs> Margu. I'm just trying to speak faster. Uh, Marta, um, now in my notes, <laughs> I don't even know what I wrote here, but it says Marta wants to seduce the count so that he'll marry her and she won't be a slave anymore. Um, I don't know if she said that or if I'm just um, interpreting, but. Well, Mama walks looks- into the room and Marta's trying on that white, what is that a nightgown? Yeah, right, the nightgown. Yep. Okay. And the mother's immediately like that. That's what you wanted all along. Like, bitch, what do you think I want? Right. Uh right. But it because it's so well, I mean, this is a black and white film, so I have no choice but to guess that it's white. That's kind of uh indicates a connection to a wedding dress. Yeah. So it's not like she's just going in there and trying on the old lady's underwear. Or, I don't know, who knows where the hell that gown came from? I wonder if Laura left it behind. Well, um, it's really interesting because um, Marta kind of evolves throughout the film as she gets more and more um, power. And yeah. what I noticed later on in the film is that she stops wearing her servant, you know, outfits. Completely. Yeah. And is um, this the first time we've seen her with her hair down? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Probably. Yep. Cool. But, um, yeah, so they're, they're arguing about this and the countess says, you know, well, get the fuck out of here then, you know, pack your bags and go. So Marta's like, wait a minute, I, you know, I can't, I can't do that. Where am I going to go? I can't, I have no outside. I've been here all my life. Where am I supposed to go? So um, Marta tries to apologize, but the countess leaves the room and then Marta follows her out and uh, they start kind of arguing a little bit more. And then Marta's like, boop, pushes her right down the steps and uh, the countess just kind of, you know, tumbles over and over down the steps. 
and lands on the bottom of the, you know, at the bottom of the staircase with some injury, some sort of trauma to one of her eyes, like her right eye, I believe, uh, is all gored up. And then Marta comes down and is like, um, finishes off the job. Like, uh, <laughs> the countess isn't really completely dead yet, but, uh, Marta wants to make sure that she is. So, um, yeah. So is, it starts off like she's choking her, but then it looks like she's banging her head on the floor too. Yeah. She's doing both. She's like strangling her. And at the same time she's grabbing, like she's got this choke hold and she's pulling her up yeah. and smashing her head into the ground. And, you know, there's a lot of marble, uh, and concrete in this, location so i'm sure that all the floors were yeah. very hard and yeah but for the csi of it i think you would not want <laughs> to choke her i think you would want to well I don't know, who knows what csi was like back in 1966 but <laughs> if you could keep finger marks off of her neck that helps out your story that the bitch fell down the stairs and broke her neck you know yeah but i mean Never the, mind the, the yep but the, but the, the seventeen whole... points of impact on her skull. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the the important thing that they always kind of bring up in these CSI cases is that is there if there isn't any suspicion of foul play, then there's no reason to look for oh, evidence yeah. of foul play, right? So when the cops finally come and it's like, well, she had an accident, and the medical examiner says, "Yep, it was an accident." You know, they don't really. And, and by them. then, I would have laid a banana peel at the top of the stairs, and we're all good. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so now it, it's pretty clear that uh, the Countess is dead, or at least is almost dead. And now we switch to a couple of different points of view of people driving in cars. And uh, Franco Nero is a terrible pretend driver. He really is. Um, <laughs> he's got this look. On, I, mean, well, I mean, here's the thing, right? So, I mean, Franco Nero has been in a million fucking things and I really liked him in the fifth court. I thought he was fun. I haven't really seen any of the spaghetti Westerns that he did. I'm not big on that stuff right now. Not to say that I wouldn't be if I didn't, you know, if I spent time with it, but for now, my mm -hmm. exposure to Franco Nero is, you know, only the films that we've watched uh, for for the Jalo uh, Chow Chow podcast and and for my website. So, is he overacting? Is this the way that Nero always acts in these films? Or, I mean, is this so early in his career that he hasn't developed an acting style yet? Or is he is this the way the character is supposed to be portrayed? Because, like his, you know. I'll bring it up about five or six more times throughout the film. Like he just, <laughs> he's got so many weird exp expressions and the way that he handles the scenes, like you know, driving in the car, like, well, it's, you notice it more because it's cutting between her driving and him driving. And she's going down the same fucking road. He is. It's not like, Right. You know, he's off-roading it in a 4x4 or something. 
she's nice and calm. Her head's barely bobbing at all. Well, and and, and her in when they show pictures of her in the car, they don't show the steering wheel or her hands on it. They just show her face. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, but, I mean, so, it's kind of a minor difference, but. Yeah. And as she uh, starts to lose control, the her steering wheel accent gets a little bit more. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. His facial expressions, like it's the first time he's ever been in anything that went over five kilometers an hour. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, this hands? was only. This is only like his fourth year making movies. Right, right. He hadn't made too many films before that. Um, I don't, it's, it's, it's like his car has very bad rack and pinion steering and (laughs) bad shocks and maybe the tires need to be a little more inflated or something, but. Well, and, and I guess, you know, for our modern audiences, there was such a thing as cars that did not have power steering. My, my mother yeah, learned how to yeah. drive in a car without power steering. And it's a lot harder to steer the car. You have to really, you know, put a lot of action into the steering wheel. So right, um, yeah. we don't even really talk about that very much anymore as a, as a culture because it's so long ago. But that was probably the kind of car that he was driving in this movie. So, um, yeah. At any rate, he starts to beep his horn when he gets close enough to see her on the road. And she <laughs> looks into, I guess she looks into a rear view mirror and realizes that it's Mino. And she gets this, she gets this little kind of smile on her face. Mm-hmm. Like she's happy that he's chasing after her. So, you know, this isn't ever said in dialogue, but you kind of get the impression that she's decided, Hey, okay, I'm going to slow down and um, pull over to the side of the road because Mino is behind me and maybe he wants to talk to me. So um, we then cut to a shot of the brake pedal that she uses to slow down. And of course it doesn't work because Marta has cut the brake fluid or brake line or drain the brake fluid or whatever it is that happens. And um, she, the car goes out of control. She can't take it. You know, she's, she's steering, you know, within an inch of her life and trying to like keep the car under control, but there's, it's no use. The car just plummets off the, well, you know, it, it, it goes off the veers off the road. It plummets down the hill and eventually, um, it starts flipping over and we get like one little camera angle of the point of view of, you know, the car flipping over and, mm-hmm. At this point, um, Mino, he pulls his car over and says, oh, I got to go save my fiance. And he walks down the hill or runs down the hill. And and then finally, we have a shot of um, the car in the water with Laura kind of almost being thrown from the wreckage. But her feet are still inside the car and she's laying kind of almost upside down in the water. We don't know if she drowned (laughs) um, and that's what killed her or if she was dead from the wreckage. But um, if you look closely, you will see a couple of air bubbles in one of the shots of her underwater. So um, I don't know if that's supposed to reinforce, hey, she was she was almost dead or if it was just to say, you know, if it's if it's just a 
you know, the fact that they had a live actress doing this shot. But in any, re- uh, in, in any rate, we get this really bad acted scene where Mino realizes that his fiance is dead and he says, no. And he says, no. And then he points his head up at the sky and then he pulls his head backwards. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a really weird reaction. Um, And we see this from Mino a few more times throughout the film. Uh, Again, overacting award. I don't know. Well, for, for me, there's just so much ridiculous in this entire sequence here. <laughs> He's driving down a narrow, curvy road that's going down the side of a hill or a mountain or something. Either way, you have like solid rock on one side of you and certain plunging death on the other side of you. You're coming up behind your girlfriend And your first thought is, let me start honking at her to totally distract her while she's driving. That's (laughs) not a good idea. (laughs) And then she starts stomping on the brakes. And I could tell by the logo she's driving uh, an Alfa Romeo, which is kind of cool. Okay, your brakes don't work. Most cars back then, especially then, even up until the 80s, most cars in Italy were still manual transmission. You can still downshift and slow down your car that way. But apparently she missed that day of driver school. Obviously. And then, just the shot, it it shocked me so much. I had to pause it until I stopped laughing. Just the look of her laying (laughs) with her legs still in the car, but her upper body in the water. I just, I cracked up. And just now, as as you were talking through it, I, I start cracking up again because it's just so fucking stupid looking. Uh, if they had made that the poster, I would have watched this film years ago. Because it's not like I just heard of The Third Eye, you know. But no doubt. Imagining, and then the bubbles just accents the point that a, a living human being had to put themselves in that position with their head upside down in the water long enough for them to get this shot really you couldn't find a mannequin or i I don't know well i mean i appreciate the fact that it looked lifelike you know and if they have to if 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 we have to suspend disbelief um as as it relates to an air bubble or two coming out of the person's nose while they're pretending to be dead underwater um i appreciate the effort that was put well, into it. If you just land in the water, there's still going to be air escaping your body, even after your heart stops beating. And yes, you know, absolutely. It's not the bubble. It's just the fact that if they had used a mannequin, I would have known it was not a person. Okay. Because you're not going to go through the trouble of getting a mannequin and then like, Oh wait, let's put some tubes up its nose. It looks more realistic. <laughs> right. The fact that they got a person to do this, and then the capper on it is him running up there and doing this melodramatic, and he starts screaming no. And you know, <laughs> we're supposed to feel for this guy. <laughs> it, it was. Yeah, he cool. pretty much ran her off the road, regardless of whether you know, breaks or not. Right. You know. Yeah. It's all your fault, genius. But. <laughs> 
Well, not necessarily, because if, if he hadn't have done that, you know, at some point towards the bottom of the hill, she would have had to slow down. I don't think Marta planned on him going after her honking his horn like an asshole to, and then, you know, have her try to slam the brakes on, on a curb above the lake or river, whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He didn't, you know, she, she assumed that this was going to be enough to get rid of, of Laura without uh, Mino interfering or, or trying to catch up with her. And uh, she was right. <laughs> and then he got back to the car. <laughs> He's screaming. And every time I see somebody, an actor or actress in a film crying, the first thing I do is zero in and look for the tears. Right. And, and, and that's a good, uh, good thing to do in real life, too, especially if you have kids. If they're crying and putting on a <laughs> scene, if you don't see the tears, don't believe it. Right. And he's doing all this uh, tossing his head back. No, no. Oh, Marta. And then he, he, it looks like he's doing a fucking toothpaste commercial or something. He may as well be smiling. <laughs> and then they cut back to her again. <laughs> yeah. Let's show her one more time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God his acting improved. After 1966. Well, I mean, that was my question. Did it? Like, that's, I don't really know the answer to that if it really did improve. Well, I liked I it, know. like it's, I said, I liked him in the fifth chord, so. Yeah. And as he's driving down the hill, how many times did you wait for him to pull out a big bottle of J&B and just start swigging <laughs> it? <laughs> <laughs> that is such a great scene. Oh, my God. Yeah. Iconic. Well, now that you mention it, I don't know if Django was ever a uh, very emotional person. I don't know how much range it takes to play a uh, spaghetti western hero. Yeah, I don't know. And I haven't seen him in too much other stuff. So. Anyway. It, it, it's it's too much for one lifetime to be able to digest, honestly. It's so much, so much stuff. Um, well, distraught and um beaten and uh, befuddled our hero makes his way back to the house we don't really know if he drove back i guess we should assume he did but he's just walking um and it looks like it's a nighttime scene he uh, he opens the door he walks in and there's a whole bunch of people in his uh, in his house in the main hallway and marta's there she's crying and they inform him, inform him that uh, his mother has had an accident and that she's dead. Um, he sits down and he is clearly at this point, you know, distraught. Like how much more can one person take in one day? But um, the medical examiner says that was an accident. Um, and they bring him in uh, to the room, I guess, to, I don't know what they're, what the point is to identify the body or something. But uh, after Mino is out of the scene, one of the police officers comes over to Marta and says, look, you know, you need to be strong. You need to support him now. Um, let's see. She must, you know, they, they basically tell her that she's got to take over, um, that she needs to be really the, uh, 
the person who's taking care of everything that's going on in the house because Mino is uh, going to be very distraught for a while. And there's a quick scene where she reveals that she's happy about all this. Um, they close up. She, she's got her head in her hands. They do a close up and she lifts her head up and you can see she does this thing where she smiles. She stops smiling. She smiles. She stops smiling. And um, it's really good. Like I, I, I liked it a lot. I, I enjoyed this actress and the way that she you know, portrayed the character very much. I think it was very subtle. Uh, some of the facial expressions and things that she did and going back to earlier in the, in the movie where she kind of smiles at Mino and he doesn't return the smile. Like, you know, you can see that she's got some subtle things going on. Um, yeah. She's acting her ass off compared to him. Yeah. Because she well, at least sure. had tears. And how condescending is it that the, the housekeeper is in the hallway bawling her eyes out. Like at least credibly for them. Who knows? Maybe she had a, Slice up onion inside that handkerchief or something. Yeah, but maybe they just put some some water droplets on her cheeks or something. Who knows? Yeah, but I mean, hell, they could have done that to him standing next right. to the lake or whatever. But the son comes home and they don't know about the fiance yet. But um, oh, sorry, Mino, your mother's dead, and <laughs> uh, let me go talk to the crying housekeeper to make sure she understands that she needs to support your emotionless fucking face. (laughs) 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 Okay. But yeah, she does that subtle thing where she goes from crying to kind of smiling and just enough to get you to understand that she's very satisfied with the way things are working out. Right. But she doesn't know for sure about the fiance yet either. Does she? Yeah, I guess that's true. But like, that's one of the things that they leave out of this film. Like he comes back from, you know, observing the wreckage and the death of his uh, fiance, but there's never any discussion about it. He immediately comes home and gets uh, bombarded with the information about his mother. And the next couple of scenes that happen after that, you know, are more about the mother and, you know, closing up the house and stuff. And there's really no discussion about, Laura or the family or burial or anything like that. You know, it's just completely written off at this point. I mean, we, we get back to it later, but, um, you know, the, I guess the, the death of the mother is really a lot more important to Marta and to him and to the story. Maybe, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Because because Marta is now in a position of power where she wasn't before. so Yeah, but I think it's kind of by accident because Marta, well, she, she put forth an effort for the death of Laura. I mean, that, right. was, some, that was an action that she took planning right. and with full agency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing with the mother was kind of just like a shit got real and then it got <laughs> out of hand. And she couldn't have seen that coming. That wasn't part of a plan. Yeah, it wasn't a plan. Right, exactly. But, oh, happy accident. 
no pun intended, or happy accidents, here I am in a much better position than I was expecting to be, even if my one plan did work. Right. Now it's just me and him, and the the field is wide open, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, again, Marta finds herself in this position uh, and it's interesting, like I, the, 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 the character development and, you know, the just all of the character motivation and internal stuff that you can kind of assume is going on inside their brains is pretty complex, especially for Marta, because it's kind of like, you know, I went from being the one who's making all the beds to, hey, I'm kind of in charge here, you know, Um mm-hmm. It's a very cool character study. So, but um, there's a couple more scenes after this one with the cops um, that kind of bridge the gap between the mother dying and the and and Mino finding out about his mother dying, and the next what I would call the next uh, act of the film, which starts for me with the jazz club scene. But before we get to the jazz club scene, um, you know, Mino and Marta are in the hallway and Mino decides that he's going to lock up these two rooms and that this part of the of the house or castle or whatever uh, is going to be closed off. You know, the, the two rooms, one being the the room that the countess sleeps in. And again, we talked about whether Mino, how much time does Mino spend in that room? Does he sleep in the bed with her? Does he, (laughs) your your question of whether he brings a cot in and sleeps next to her. Um, (laughs) We don't really know for sure. Like what, how incestuous this relationship is. And then he also locks the door to the room that was under construction, quote unquote, where, you know, it was going to be the marital room of Laura and Mino, but of course it's not going to now. So he locks this up right. and um, he basically says, you know, we're not going to enter this anymore. We're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to come into this area. Um, and he's wearing this all black with a black turtleneck, black jacket, black pants. It's very much like he's in mourning. But one of the things I wanted to bring up for our discussion is that in the scene right after he locks all the doors, they they end the scene on this owl statue. Yeah. It's like a a sculpture, not a statue. Yeah, like it's a sculpture. And I'm trying to figure out whether or not it's intentional or whether it means something or there's some symbolism. I mean, obviously we know that he likes to stuff birds and this owl statue or sculpture is pretty odd looking. And one thing to notice about it is that for the most part, it's free of debris. It's got a little bit of a spider web down at the bottom by the, by the feet. But for the most part, it's looks clean, but they make an, you know, they make a, a point of 
panning after he closes the door, they pan to the left and they show this owl and the music kind of builds up to a crescendo. And, you know, if it was unintentional, that's fine. But it seems like they're saying, hey, pay attention to this owl. I don't know why, (laughs) um, but that's what I got out of it. So, well, um, the owl looks a little cross-eyed. Yeah, he's definitely cross-eyed. Yep. So. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's a sign of impending insanity. Or... Well, we, see, we see the owl two more times in the movie, so we'll get to him eventually. But uh, We see this one? Yeah, the same owl is shown oh, like okay. two more times. And, well, then it's got to mean something to somebody. Well, I, I don't want to jump ahead, but I'm going to in that the next time <laughs> we see the owl, it's got all these cobwebs all over it. So I guess we're supposed to assume that a lot of time has passed. Like, I don't I don't know if it if that continuity huh. issue is important or, 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 you know, maybe it's not maybe it's not a continuity issue. And we're supposed to we're supposed to notice that time has passed or what? I don't really know, but. You know, we'll we'll get there eventually. So but. you think it might be like a symbolic metaphor for some of the subtextual stuff that's going on? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's it's interesting that it's a sculpture, though, because you would expect hell. This guy has a ton of birds laying around, right? Why not just put a stuffed bird there? Yeah, instead of a statue. Like, what's the point? Yeah. But um, but it, they they could have found a better looking. I mean, I I think it. Even as a sculpture, it looks like somebody fucked with the eyes. Like whoever yeah. created that sculpture, I didn't think had the eyes looking the way it does. So. I think yeah, they're it's trying really to do some kind of meaning or feeling to it by customizing it, so to speak. But they. Uh, there, there's at least one more time, if not two more times in the movie where the camera pans, like the scene is over and I guess they're trying to create some sort of an artistic transition between the scenes and they, the camera pans and the music builds and they, they, the camera stops on something and you're like, what the fuck am I looking at here? Like, why am I, am I supposed to notice this? Am I supposed to, take stock in this information and use it later. That's they certainly imply with the owl, but I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, I don't know. Maybe they just thought this is something Hitchcock would do. <laughs> <laughs> right. It could be very much uh, indicative of that. Um, well, the the final scene before the, the the jazz club is that Mino retires to his bedroom. I'm not exactly sure where this bedroom is. I guess it's wherever he's normally been sleeping, waiting for his, you know, his wedding day and, and the you know the, the 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 bedroom that's being renovated for the married the married couple. It's not ready yet. So this is where he sleeps by himself. And he lays down in the bed and he has this big kind of 
I don't necessarily want to call it a flashback sequence because they show things that he wasn't really privy to as far as his point of view, but they just show right. a whole bunch of stuff and it's kind of like a recounting of things that have happened so far. And um, eventually Marta comes in and asks him if he's okay. Do you feel okay now? And he says, um, yeah, I'm okay. And he, and he leaves. Uh, and that's the, the end of what I would consider to be act one of this film. Yeah, um, it's right at the one third mark of yeah. the runtime. Yeah, so. it's pretty it's it's pretty uh pretty formulaic for sure. Now, I love this next scene. I love the way that they composed it. It looks like it may be a single shot from the beginning. So I want to break it down and get really geeky about it. We see a a ride, it looks like a ride symbol. Um, and a drummer with some brushes. And then we see this woman who looks like a, a large version of Ella Fitzgerald playing the trumpet with a mute. And then we see the piano player. The camera comes down and starts to pan left. We see the woman with the cigarette. We see another woman laughing. Two people drinking, more people drinking. We go left, we go left, we go left, we go left. We keep going. We see more and more people. We see the bartender. We see a couple more people, and then we finally see Mino, and he's at the bar. And I thought that was uh, a pretty artistically done shot. Like I really appreciated the the work that went into, you know, composing that. Because you, you know, when you've got these shots where it's a single cut, you know, mo- in modern days we t- we talk about the Steadicam shot, but I don't know if they had Steadicam back then. So, um. It's a hand. Well, it's not just panning. It's also going up and down. And yeah, I mean, it's not like they just had something on a track and slowly pulled it back. It's it's doing stuff. And I don't think well, it, it doesn't yeah. look like it's going in a very straight line as it moves either. So, no, it's definitely going up and down. But I guess one of the things that is important to notice is that not everybody is in focus while they're panning. But when they finally get to Mino, you know, he's kind of in the foreground and he's um, in focus for sure. But uh, yeah, I really like that. I thought that was really cool how they did that. So then they cut to, uh, I guess, the hostess or the announcer who says, you know, introducing so-and-so. What does she say is the name of the person? I didn't write that down. Do you have that or not really? Uh, Coming right up. The name of the Maria Mordant. Okay, is what so she says. Maria, so, the exotic, whatever, whatever. Well, Mordant, I guess, would be a French type of surname. What's interesting is the character's name, or at least the character's stage name, which is like a double character name, is. Maria Mordaunt, but is played by Marina Morgan. Huh. So, so that's not, that's just two letter changes away from the actress's name. So the actress's name for this is also very close to the character's name. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, the actress's name is Marina 
here it's Maria, and then Morgan, and here it's Mordant. Huh. Okay. And adding, well, Mordant is very close to uh, Mord, which would be French for uh, death. Right. Mordant humor, right? So, uh, maybe... I don't know, we can pretend they did that on purpose and it's kind of creepy and cool. <laughs> but right now I'm wondering if that actress started out her showbiz career as a, uh, I don't know, what do you call this? It's not exactly cabaret dancing, but club dancing or whatever. Right. But she had 11 acting credits within six years. And she started acting the year before this. So, I don't know. So, the strip tease starts, and eventually Mino gets up from his seat because he's just, I guess, enamored, and he kind of walks towards the main area where she's doing her dancing. She eventually strips down to, I guess it's like pasties. <clears throat> Damn. And, um... You know, her, you know, her bottoms are still on. Um, but they make this kind of eye contact and she kind of winks at him and it's implied that, you know, something is going to happen between the two of them. And, <laughs> and they don't waste any time because the very, very next scene is him turning the light on in the bathroom and she's there with him in his house. And it's like, <laughs> okay, I yeah. guess he brought her home. And well, not- it, as soon as she comes out, it's like he's hypnotized. Like, like her body is a tractor beam for his eyeballs or something. Right. Well, and then he literally mind. just gets up and starts walking towards her like he can't help himself. And okay, I get it. But. Was he always like this, or did something happen with the double death day that he just had that triggered this uh, uncontrollable libido urge in him? That's a good question. It's hard to know. But then again, you know, he may have been weird up until this point, and we just didn't see it because, I mean, he's a taxidermist, and, you know, even the very beginning. Well, he was kind of horny. With um Yeah. With Laura. When he was showing Laura the bedroom. Yeah, he, you know, they cut away to something and then they came back and he was like just going for it and she's kind of pushing him off like, No, not now, not yet, not here. Not yeah, now. he was Mr. Grab you know, grabby hands for sure. Yeah. So wouldn't you think somebody like that would have already started something with the housekeeper? I mean, if he grew up with her <laughs> in that house. Right. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, maybe they did. Maybe they but, have a past, yeah. you know, another spinoff. Yeah. There's a whole nother. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dude, this is another movie we could turn yeah. into a whole fucking season of TV. Uh, exactly. Hollywood calls. Yeah. Do you remember when um, they did a spinoff to Three's Company called The Ropers? Yes. <laughs> eight episodes <laughs> that's the first thing i thought of it's terrible oh and then they did the sequel called three's a crowd where yes. jack got married and had to live with his father-in-law or some shit like that oh my gosh 
And uh, let's see, what else can we age ourselves with? Talk about um, desperate. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, they're back at the house and there's a suggestion here that he's going to pay her or give her some sort of favor or give her some sort of present. I forget what the subtitles are um, for her services. So we're, we're kind of, you know, we're kind of, it's kind of suggesting to us now that um, she's not there because she really likes him. She's there because this is her, her real job. She goes and she dances, but then she goes home with somebody and makes all this, you know, extra money. But, um, yeah, she says, "Will you give your sweetheart a nice gift?" Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's kind of out there. But like, her body is fantastic. It's like <laughs> she's you know, got. When I first saw her come out with that crazy eye makeup shit going on, it was terrible. Yeah, I just thought, "Ugh, what the hell is this?" But by the time I got a good look at the fishnet and hips, and all, I was just like, oh, "Okay, hold well, on." Well, she's in, you know, now that she's in the house with Mino and she strips down to her underwear and she's got like this really nice, you know, hourglass figure, a tiny little belly. She even has like the butt dimples uh, right about about an inch above the 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 panty line, the top of the border of the underwear, the bottoms. There's these two dimples that are just driving me crazy. (laughs) oh like at the base of her spine yeah 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 what's up with that i've seen those uh around yeah those are they don't you know they those that that's not a thing that everybody like every woman has but some of them do and it's not necessarily anything related to your weight or you know and, and an excess of body fat it's just yeah, uh, it has to do with the hips, like how wide her hips are, I guess. Yeah, hourglass figure was is definitely <laughs> how she would be described. Mm. So uh, she comes around. She's kind of examining this room, and then she she runs into this thing where she screams a little bit or she gasps, and it looks like it's like a bird habitat. Maybe is that what it is? There's no birds in the habitat. It looks like they're all dead, but. Oh, it's like why, a, why like is a big this, bird cage type. Thing. Yeah. Why is this in the countess's bedroom? You know? Yeah. I don't think it was there before when we saw her arguing with Marta. Okay. So she turns, she sees something, she's shocked and pause. Oh, all the birds are dead at the bottom. Right. But. Okay. You know. And there's, I don't know what that has to those, do with anything, but why would she care if the birds are dead? She's seen a dead bird before. You would hope. Wait. All right. So anyway, um, she's a little. I think in general, what we're supposed to get out of this is that um, she's on edge. She doesn't understand what the hell's going on. She thought that yeah. she was going to go back to Mino's house and you know do the nasty and get a little bit of money and then leave, but. He told he tells her to take her clothes off and then he disappears and she starts walking around trying to figure out, you know, what the fuck? Where did he go? Why? Where is he? What's all this? What's with these all these dead birds? And then all of a sudden he shows up 
and um, they walk into the next room. And this is the adjoining rooms that have been previously locked. So apparently, you know, they've been unlocked for this purpose. Um, right. So, and then that begs the question of, you know, did he unlock them ahead of time before he went to the jazz club, knowing that he was going to bring back some sort of stripper? Like, you know, as far as before he left for the jazz club or went to the jazz club, he told Marta, Hey, you know, nobody is going to use this part of the the house anymore. So, now we fast forward to the fact that he's back home with this hooker and all of the doors are unlocked. So mm-hmm. when did he unlock them? You know, we don't really know. And right now they're in the room that he was having renovated for he and his, well, for him and Laura. Right. 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 Cause there's newspaper and so. Yeah. Oh, and she so. says to him, you know, don't you have anything a little bit, uh, more romantic or a little bit more, you know, comforting for me, yeah. for us to be in because, and he's like, no, this is all I have. So um, he turns on the light and he tells her to take the rest of her clothes off. And then he, she walks behind the curtain, which is basically surrounding the bed that he's already sitting on. And um, we then cut to the scene where, uh, they're making out or having some sort of like amorous exchange. And then all of a sudden um, <laughs> he's doing something where she's able to look to her right and she sees something and her eyes light up and she starts to scream. And as the audience, we don't see it yet. We don't know what she's looking at. What is she screaming at? Because we immediately cut to Marta in a nightgown hearing the screams and deciding to investigate what's going on. So Uh she comes over to the door and she opens it. And uh, there's this weird little hallway between the the two rooms, I guess, or I don't know. She's, she's, she's trying to figure out where the sounds are coming from, but then we are treated to this, the O face, you know about the O face. I'm going to show her my O face. This is Franco Nero's O-Face. And I don't know if it's his O-Face because he's strangling her or it's because he's, you know, copulating with her or is it both? We don't, I, you know, they don't really show you what's really going on, but he's got this look on his face where his eyes have rolled into the back of his head and he's sticking his head up and his back is arched and it's just very erotic and weird and disturbing all at the same time. Um, Yeah. And eventually we cut to the hooker uh, or the, you know, the the call girl, the girl he brought back with him dying because he's got his hands around her throat and. And um, Marta's standing right there. Marta's and Marta's standing right there in the doorway. Um, Mino collapses from shame or whatever. <laughs> and then we finally see that Laura has been stuffed and is in the bed next to them is on the, the adjacent mattress. And I guess that was what, you know, the, the hooker was screaming about. She, I, she's, it, she, yeah. It'd make me scream. 
she saw this dead body. So, um, and Marta takes all of this in perfect stride. Right. She's not, uh, you know, perturbed at all. She, she doesn't lose her shit. She's not freaked. But not then again, all. she just pushed an old lady down the fucking steps. <laughs> She's hardened a little bit. But, okay, if you're Mino and you have the, I guess, should we assume that he's already stuffed Laura in a taxidermy sense? Right. Okay, so you're Mino. You tell the housekeeper, this part of the house is locked off. We're never going to come in here again. I'm locking all the doors and taking the keys with me. And you put your dead taxidermied fiancé in a bed. And then you bring home this cabaret dancer, whatever, uh, very shapely hoochie mama, to the house. (laughs) And get her in the bed next to your taxidermied dead fiancé. And then you strangle her to death. Does it not cross your mind at any point? To lock the fucking door so that the housekeeper doesn't hear the scream and struggle, maybe, and come into the room? No, I don't think so, because I think that Mino is, is crazy. Shit. Right. Okay. He And he even refers to his third eye after the second murder, mm. um, which is a really weird reference, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, okay. yeah, I don't, I, I don't think he's really, uh, in control of his faculties. I think that, uh, he's thrown caution to the wind. Um, give me three or four more cliches to throw in here. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. It just seems like he's like, you know what? Who gives a fuck? Like, I'm not, I'm not going to pay attention to details here. I just want to, I just want to bang and strangle this hooker while I lay next to my dead wife who I've stuffed. Yeah. And his, I'm telling his you, cheese has slipped off his cracker. Right. And I'm telling you, this is like a Barney episode compared to the Joe D'Amato version. <laughs> Honestly, I swear really? to God. <laughs> oh, God. Now I got to see it. It's so trashy. Um, okay. Anyway. But does it have a cool housekeeper like Marta? No, you know what? I was going to bring this up earlier. Um, there's no mother in the Joe Diamato version. There's just the housekeeper and the the son. And then, you know, there's the the woman that he's in love with. Um, yeah. In, if I remember correctly, in the Joe Diamato version, the the woman who's the caretaker, who's also in love with the the main character, the man character, she does some sort of voodoo um, oh. to kill uh, <laughs> the fiance. And I, I can't even, I, I won't go into it because some of the shit that happens in that movie is so ridiculous. It's just, it's not even worth it doesn't, I don't do it any justice by talking about it. You just have to watch it. It's just, uh, and, and Goblin did the soundtrack. So for anybody listening, if you haven't seen the Joe D'Amato version of 
you know, uh, Beyond the Darkness. It's just such a great movie. It's so terrible and trashy and awful, <laughs> but it's so well made. I, I think the cinematography and the just, just the way that you know, just the art, the artfulness of the film and the music, and how trashy it is. You got to see it if you haven't already. Um, I regret that they had actually did a screening of the film in thirty-five millimeter at the. Uh, Philadelphia Film Society and I didn't go to it to watch it but I should have hmm. um, anyway uh, after all of this craziness happens um, again like you said Marta eh, you know she's like eh, whatever you know no big deal um, Marta I wonder if the says, wheels in her head are already turning Meaning she's already thinking, ooh, I can use this. Yeah, how do I how do I um fix this to my advantage? Right. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And she says you know, and he, and she's like, Okay, look, we uh, uh, we've got to call the police and he's like, No, no, we can't call the police and she says, Okay, well, we've got to get rid of the body then and he says, Well, let's just, you know, hide it and bury it somewhere and she says, No, we can't do that. We've got to get rid of the body. Um, in the lab with acid, and that's this is one of the this is one of the scenes where, when I watched, when I watched it the second time with the English language, those are her exact words. You can see exactly that she says, "We have to get rid of her in the lab with acid," and it matches it matches exactly her lip movements. So, and um, not to spoil it for anybody, but in the Joe Diamato version, they definitely use acid to get rid of the bodies. And in as opposed to this version where you're just left to your imagination, uh, you're not left to your imagination in the Joe Diamato version. Let's just put it that way. The acid bath uh, scene. Um, okay, it's, and a then, great, it's a great scene. And then, as soon as she says "with acid," it cuts to the exterior, and right. that is definitely the place. Yeah, the murder clinic. Place. The murder clinic. Okay. And then this next scene really kind of weirded me out. Um, Mino is here. He's got a little cardigan going on. He's got his. Uh, he's got a tie on, and he's trying to get his parrot to fly or at least flap its wings by poking it with a stick. And at the end of the scene, I wasn't entirely sure whether or not the parrot was ever alive in the first place. Like, is this, you know, how we have these movies where, you know, there's these unreliable narrators and what's real and what isn't and what's being, what's being, fantasized versus what's real um you know but he's got these crazy eyes and he's just got the stick and he's trying to get the parrot to fly and the parrot's just clearly you know um being abused and okay and then she comes in and we see that the parrot is obviously alive 
I mean, you can't fake that shit. He's wearing, like you said, the cardigan. She comes in, she looks, and she kind of stares off like, what the hell? This guy's losing his, uh, whatever. He, he's right. Going crazy. So she looks almost into the camera. Hold for a second. And then we cut to a, a stuffed, stuffed parrot. parrot. A stuffed parrot. Is it, right. Is it the parrot stuffed? Or is well, it a stuffed parrot? Well, and he's wearing something else now. And he's wearing something else, but he still has the stick. Yeah. And it's like, what the hell? And that and that scene, like it fades out. Like you know, they they at after he starts petting this dead parrot, we fade to black, and it's clear that the filmmakers wanted you to say or, or wanted you to notice that okay, we've gotten to the end of this scene. We're going to move on from here. Right. So what the fuck really happened? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. it's like the director saying, "Yeah, what the fuck do you think about that?" And we're like, "What the fuck was that?" <laughs> I right. Don't know what to think. Okay, he he killed and stuffed the parrot and changed the clothes, and he's still poking it with the stick. And anyway, let's change some license plates. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that's what happened, right? So we're supposed to assume that some time has passed. He yeah, he's poking the parrot, trying to make it fly, and he's wearing this thing. And then they cut to Marta, kind of like you said, okay, kind but, of staring off into space a little bit. And then we cut. So does that mean that he killed the parrot, or does that mean the parrot was stuffed the whole time? Right, that's a good question. Was it was it always stuffed and he was just fantasizing that it was alive or did he was he playing with it, you know, and then he changed his clothes and killed it and stuffed it. And, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah, the next scene um, we see uh, Mino and he is manipulating uh, the license plate here. It says AV four twenty one seventy four. He takes the license plate off and puts a new one on that says NA35, but it's not on screen for very long. Um, so if you didn't notice it, you will see it again later that the license plate is different because um, there's a close-up of it. Basically, the conversation between the two of them, um, Marta walks in. And she says, you know, you should probably get out. You're, you've been cooped up in here too long. And he says, no, that, I don't want to. And then she says, yeah, you should. And then he says, well, okay, maybe I should. And you notice she's a little bit dolled up now compared to before. Yeah, yeah, right. She's she's, she's got her hair did, and yep. she has her eye thing going on, maybe uh, lashes or something. She's dressed very. I'm not a fucking housekeeper, or if I am, it's my day off. Right, and not only that, but her whole attitude is very accommodating. Like, hey, you know, um, I'm here to take care of you. You should go out and. You know, yeah, get some get 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 some stress relief. So, <clears throat> Mino goes to. It's not as sophisticated as the last time he picked up a hooker. Um, this time he now goes to some you know street where the street walkers are wa- are working and picks up this very um, bitchy hooker. Um, <laughs> honestly. <clears throat> She says her name is Loredana, I think. And she's really a bitch. Um, She's like, oh, you must be like one of those limo drivers. And then 
he pulls out this big wad of cash and gives it to her. And she's like, oh, my God, I haven't seen this much money in my entire life. And then she goes, I hope it's not fake. Maybe you're one of those counterfeiters. Um, well, see, so, he hands her that big wad of cash. You would think a streetwise prostitute or whatever we're calling them today would be a little suspicious about that. Because, I mean, has she never played GTA? She, he's going to get that money back. He's going to leave it with her. <laughs> <laughs> but, I don't know. I think she's kind of hot, even if she is a bitch. Yeah. She's, oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. She's quite the looker. She's Even more so than the dancer, I think. Yeah. At least. Uh, but we don't in, really get know. to see her body very much. That's the only problem. Right. Well, I was about to say at least her, uh, you know, from the shoulders up. Yeah. I mean, if we could take the head from this girl and put it on the body. <laughs> okay. Oh we're very God. woke, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. And keep the dimples. Don't cancel us. Keep the yeah. ass dimples. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's and, the subtitle uh, for this episode. give her Marta's no shit attitude. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and the mother's undying devotion. And what else? <laughs> <laughs> We're just making a Frankenstein. It's like it's like pieces. <laughs> hey, there's an idea. <laughs> All right. Uh, episode 97, Ass Dimples. That's what we're calling it. Um, yeah. What was I going to say? Oh, I, I think that in the very, very next scene, after he gives her the money, she's got this look on her face like, oh, my God, what's going on? And then he strangles her. I guess... It's the same thing as before where um, she must have looked to her right and saw the stuffed body of Laura and yeah. starts screaming and then he strangles her. But if you they notice took straight to that and cut out the yeah, they cut out the middleman. We, don't, around shit. we yeah. don't get all that, you know, how do you do get to know you kind of thing. But if you and notice thing you see after he strangles her, Marta hears the the sounds again, comes out to investigate and we get another close-up of the owl statue. Or not a close-up. Yeah, but it but looks it's, like it's in a different place now. It's in the foreground because, and it's got cobwebs all over it. But I mean, it looks higher up. I thought before it was more doorknob level when it panned over. Yeah, it might have been. It might have been. And it now it's in the hallway before it was in the bedroom, wasn't it? I No, I think it was in the hallway. Because they, because he, they're in the hallway earlier in the movie. He locks the two doors to the places where he doesn't want to go in anymore, and then they pan left and they they show you the owl. So they're that's the hallway for sure. Okay, it's definitely got more cobwebs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like that's the question. Okay, so <laughs> if we're going to assume that this is not a continuity issue, does that mean that a lot of time has gone by? Like, how much time does it take for? a bunch of cobwebs to accumulate on a statue in, in the hallway. Um, uh, I don't know, but it looks like the housekeeper's not doing her fucking job anymore. Well, maybe she that's what it, maybe that that's what it is. That's pretty insightful. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because when she was the servant, she would have dusted those cobwebs at least three or four times by now. Yeah. Wow. Especially okay. with whip cracking mama back there. Right. She's gone. Right. Wow, okay. I like that. And uh, 
we get a nice full body shot of Loredana laying on the bed. Um, yes. I guess dead. But Very dead. the pose is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Like she has her head cocked and her arm up. And, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, she almost looks like a mannequin. I mean, I know that she's not, obviously, but you you don't really die with your hand like that. I can't imagine. I, yeah. I don't so, I appreciate that shot, but they could have posed her a little sure. more interestingly. Yeah. So this is a really cool scene. Um, Marta comes in. She closes the drapes on the four-poster bed, and um, this is when Mino starts talking about his third eye. Um, and let me check my notes, because I have something in here about the third eye. Uh Okay, so I'm trying to remember which is which, but in the English language soundtrack, he says that he has a third eye that only wants to see violence and death. But in the subtitles, it says, I have a third eye that only moves in one direction. Now, that's Mm -hmm. really different. Obviously, a big difference between those two things, like the connotation of what is that third eye supposed to be responsible for? And, you know, the fucking movie is called The Third Eye, even in Italian. So this is an important scene where he actually mentions the third eye. Um, You know, it may be we may be looking into this more than it needs to be, but the general idea here is that Mino is schizophrenic or bipolar or has multiple personalities or whatever. And Mm -hmm. he's admitting to Marta right now. He's like, you know, I I feel like I have another person inside of me that only really wants to just kill people. And then, but you know, admittedly it's not his whole persona because after he kills these women, he realizes that he did something bad and that there's some other force that's kind of, you know, controlling some of his actions or something. And he's admitting to Marta that this at the moment. So. Right. And he's not as freaked out this time as he was with the, the dancer from the club. No, no. And he's I wonder if that's because. standing there and. Yeah. He's doing like his psycho Kung Fu shit or. You know, Tai Chi of batshit people. Right. And I wonder if that has to do with the fact that um, she basically endorsed what he did last time by helping him cover it up. So now he feels emboldened or... No, it's it's like neither one of them. I mean, she, she didn't have a problem with it the first time, but now he doesn't seem to have a problem with it. And he's kind of making excuses for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and we don't, shit. we don't see, you know, the stuff that happens with them getting rid of the body of the first hooker. They don't show any of that. It's just assumed that it's been taken care of. And so yeah. now I guess the two of them have a little bit of a connection because, they're both guilty of, of 
a little bit of this crime. I mean, for the most part, it's right. him, but she's an accomplice. So um, now that it's happened a second time, they have a different attitude about it. But um, what we find out is that uh, Marta basically says to him, look, um, I'm going to go. Um this is, you know, this is too much, like all this shit that's going on. And Mino says, no, I want you to stay. Um, and eventually she she says, look, um, I don't want to be a servant or a slave anymore. And I will stay and I will take care of you and I will cover up your murders and I will deal with your psychosis that is clearly incurable and you will continue to pull these hookers bring these hookers home and kill them and I will have to take care of their bodies. But in exchange for all of that, if you marry me and I become the woman of the house, it's all good. And, uh, yeah, this is where she sets the hook. Yeah. And does he say something like, okay, or does he agree to it? I, I don't remember that part, but it seems like they've come to an arrangement. Yeah. She, she equivocates her life with his. I grew up in this house just like you did. And it's like she's trying to erase the fact that even her dad, who died, was a servant. And they didn't necessarily have to keep her there. I mean, I don't want to sound like some uh, asshole rich person. But right, her life could have been a lot worse. They were doing her a favor. To, in, but in, she's trying to equivocate her life with his. Like, I'm just like you. I grew up here. Why well, come you get everything and I don't? Right. Well, yeah, it sucks. It might not be fair, but that's life. Right? Exactly. So she's trying to level the playing field as an excuse for him to marry her. And he's dingy enough to go for it, I guess. Yeah, but, well, partly he's crazy, and the other part of him is he feels like she's the only person that knows what he's doing, and that she can help cover him up, cover up his, you know, his problems and his crimes. And yeah, it, it's not like he has any other friends, and he certainly doesn't have any other family that right. we've seen. So yeah, she is all he has, and she's, she's all he has, taking yep. full advantage of it, but. Is she betting that he's too crazy to realize what could happen to him after she gets ma- after they get married? Because do you think her plan is to marry this crazy guy and deal with him bringing home hookers and having to dispose of bodies for very long? Fuck no. No, probably not. She's going to marry this guy and then, oops, his brakes went out too. Yeah. Gee, now this is all mine. Right, I'm- right. That's the end game for her, for sure. Yeah. But she's she's not, I don't know that she's, I mean, she probably has that going on in the back of her mind, but for the most part, right now, she's just trying to get to the next level. She's just, just trying right, yeah. to, you know, elevate herself out of servant status. And that's really all that matters to her at this point. But um, let's see here. He's so damn skinny. 
Yeah, he's. I was going to say that too. He's very skinny. Um, okay. Daytime. Oh, oh, okay. So Marta agrees to stay if they get married. She'll take care of him and cover up his murders. And the scene ends. And I think this is the end of Act Two because um, the next scene, it's daytime. And Marta is picking flowers in contrast to the opening scene. And she hears some noises and a car pulls up. And all of a sudden it's Laura. And it's like, ah, what's going on here? And we know <laughs> from previous films that this kind of thing could happen, especially like, you know, Diabolique. Um, wait a minute. Are you dead? You're not dead. Where are you dead? You're not dead. Um, but as it turns out, there's a practical explanation for this. This is not Laura. This is Daniela, who looks exactly like Laura. And the problem that I have with this, and it's just a minor problem, is that you could say that they were twin sisters. That would make a lot of sense. But earlier in the film, Laura says, my younger sister is coming back from college. So they're not twins, but they look exactly the same. I mean, again. Well, maybe she meant younger by like 12 minutes. Yeah, right. I mean, I was born first. That could be. <laughs> um, so this woman appears and Marta has got this look on her face like, holy shit, what is going on here? Am I dreaming? And then all of a sudden she says, hey, um, are you... Do you do you know my sister, Laura? And then I guess at that point, Marta kind of breathes a sigh of relief because she realizes that this isn't Laura and that she's not going crazy. Um, and Daniela, who's this is the the new version of Laura. Daniela Daniela says, you know, <clears throat> I came here to to see Mino, and uh, Marta says, well, Mino's not around. Uh, this is the second time that Marta has said that Mino is not around when he really is. And while she's telling Daniela that Mino is not around, Mino emerges from the woods with his rifle, uh, you know, around his shoulder. And wouldn't it be funny if he saw the sister and freaked out and shot her? Like he thought it was a ghost or something. Yeah. Because <laughs> he is crazy. Dude, that'd be awesome. Well, the thing about this is that Mino really um, appears to be very sane in this particular scene. He's just very nice. He's very accommodating. Um, he's friendly. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Marta is staring off into space. She got this jealous look on her face. And again, like all her plans just went down the drain. Yeah, it's like everything's just spiraling out of control all of a sudden. And just like the scene um, way back in the beginning where Marta and Mino are in the laboratory, there's another scene, there's another camera point of view here um, that's overhead. And it's almost as if a bird was watching um, right. what they're doing. But again, just like the statue of the bird. The camera pans up, it pans to the left, the music crescendos, and it stops on this like shot of the trees with the sun shining through it, and there's nothing really to see, but they they kind of make it out like, you know, this is something important is about to happen, or notice this, or what have you, and 
Um, but anyway, I wrote that down. But um, oh, yeah, I know what happens. Cool. Daniela reveals that they haven't found Laura's body; that they're still looking for the body in the water. And of course, we know where Laura's body really is. So Mino says, "Look, I don't want you to go back to your hotel. You should stay with us." And she says, "Okay, no problem. I will, I I will accept your gracious accommodations and your generosity." Um. <clears throat> so the next scene is um, the Laura Daniela character sitting at a table with Mino. They're having uh, dinner, it looks like. And she says to him, um, I have this fantasy that I will be at a table with someone just like you having dinner. Um, but it would be at the turn of the century, um, not this boring age of 1965. And <laughs> when I watched it the first time, the subtitles actually said, not this boring age of 1968. And I don't know huh. if you noticed that or if you watched it with the subtitles on, but I'm going, how could she say 1968 if the film was made in 66? So... Um, it must have been just a translation error with the subtitles, probably. Um, but anyway, the thing that's really important well, about Well, my this, subtitles say 65. Okay. So it must just be the, the that fan dub version that I had that the subtitles are off. But um, okay. anyway. Well, I mean, they're in a mansion that was built in the, what, 17th century. It wouldn't take a lot. To make it not look like 1965. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's it's um, it's hard to remember even that they're living in modern times, because most of the scenes take place in this castle. But of course, you know right. they're not wearing Victorian dresses and stuff like you know. That yeah, you see if like it wasn't for their clothes, this could have been a you know for real gothic. From like the 1800s or something. Right, right. Absolutely. Until you see, the, I mean, it's hard to cut the brake lines on a horse and carriage. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> but the most important part of this scene is that, and again, it, some of it is lost between the translation of the English language and the subtitles, but Mino pours himself a drink and he says something about how she Let me see here. He's he's kind of he's trying to explain that he's living in this weird kind of gray area between the past and the future and mm -hmm. that this woman who's there with him now represents both. You know, she's she's a vision of the fiance that he used to have. And I guess at this point, he's also considering that he might have a future with her sister because she looks just like Laura. So she kind of represents the past and the future. Mm -hmm. And we see that Marta is listening to this all. But before we see that, uh, Daniela says, you know, there is a connection between the past and the future and it's the present. Um, so, I think this is some good foreshadowing for later where it's clear that 
Mino doesn't know that he's not in the past anymore. You know, eventually he, if we skip ahead, um, he doesn't consider Daniela to be Daniela anymore. He thinks it's Laura. Um, right. So I think that, you know, he was, this is kind of a turning point for, for Mino at this, you know, he's lost his fiance. He's lost his mother. He's a fucking rapist, a strangling maniac of hookers. And lo and behold, his dead fiance comes back and looks exactly like his dead fiance, but it's her sister. So he's, you know, you can't blame the guy if he's a little confused at this point. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. He's <laughs> been through a lot. <laughs> yes. Really I can't has. say he's coping with it in a very healthy way, no. to say the least, or a way that I hope I would if I was in the same situation. <laughs> but he starts out as a spoiled little rich mama's boy who erupts on his fiance because she took the time to go pick flowers for his mother and he's having a little stompy hissy fit about it. And then he's running off to apologize to her profusely. And then he's trying to bend her over the back of the bed in this renovating room. <laughs> and okay. So he's not starting off from the best position. And then she dies. The fiance dies. And then the mother dies. And then this evil club dancer hypnotizes you with her pasties. And... <laughs> You give in to your demonic urges and this evil bitch housekeeper helps you cover it up and then you do it again. And okay, so he's going through a lot. And then the dead fiance, as far as you can tell or as far as you feel, comes walking out of the grave right back into your life. I mean, yeah, it's enough to drive anybody nuts. Agreed. Yep, absolutely. Poor Mino. And now he's got this manipulative um, servant who's trying to change, you know, the way his life (laughs) is going to go. Yeah. And you got this gold digging housekeeper. And (laughs) the funniest part is when he turns to her and says, you can go, Marta. I don't need you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And on one hand, it's like, you callous asshole. She's the one that's been helping you. But then again, it's like, wait a minute. Whose side am I on? Right. Yeah. She's she's a bitch, too. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, you know, again, we already mentioned this, but she has not yet returned to wearing any of her servants clothes. She's completely in, you know, in in embrace this idea of being the lady of the house. Um, She's retired already. Yeah. Yeah. She's cashing in her 401k. And, (laughs) and meanwhile, here comes the tax man. It's, uh, it's Laura, but it's not Laura. It's Daniela or Danielle. Yeah. Daniela. So, um, she's waiting to get the discount at Denny's. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There is a scene where, you know, so at the end of the scene is Daniela decides, you know, I'm leaving, I'm going to bed. We can talk about this tomorrow. Um, Mino goes back to his bedroom and Marta confronts him. Um, but Mino is acting like they never discussed this plan about getting married. Um, and he also mentions that his, you know, he also makes note of the fact that his mother is still alive and that Laura is still alive. 
And Marta's like, no, what are you, crazy? Like, your mother's dead, and Laura's dead, and Mino's calls her a crazy liar and um, sends her away and pushes her out of the door and starts screaming about, I don't know what he's screaming about, something about you're crazy, you're all crazy, everybody's crazy. Get out, get out, get out. Um, yeah, he's really losing it at this point, so... Okay, so do you ever wonder if maybe he's trying to gaslight, manipulate her like his mother did? Yeah, oh, I, I mean, never said that. It definitely occurred to me that he's pretending mm-hmm. to think that Daniela is Laura, but um, towards the end, you know, it seems like he's fully attached to this fantasy. Yeah, okay. but we'll see. I mean. See what you think when we get there. So he sends her away. Um, there's this really cool uh, artistically done shot of, I guess it's the camera panning to the right, showing all of these like pots and pans that are hanging on the wall of the kitchen. And eventually we see that the clock is striking midnight and there's a drawer that opens and the YouTube ads have interrupted what I was watching (laughs) and then the drawer opens and somebody puts a hand in and grabs a really big knife and then we see a point of view shot of someone walking down the hallway of I guess where all the rooms are and uh, the figure turns and now we see a picture of we see a shot of um, Daniela sleeping in the bed and in comes a figure holding a knife and is dressed in, you know, wearing a wearing a lady's dress. Now, for a minute there, I'm starting to go, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm going, why are they not showing that it's Marta? We know it's Marta. But if you think about Psycho and the idea of Norman Bates dressing up as his mother and going right. after people with a knife... Maybe this is a little bit of a tease, like, who really is this? Is this, is the mother still alive? Is Mino dressing up like the mother to, you know, that's his alter, you know, like, like, that's what, that's what occurred to me. And it didn't last very long because um, a couple of scenes later, we see Marta's face and she's holding a knife. So it's not like they were trying to perpetuate this, this mystery, you know. I think they were totally trying to psych us out. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, I myself, and I'm pretty sure they kind of figured all the audience are going to be expecting the camera to, to pan up and it's going to be Franco Nero with a wig Mm. wearing that dress. I mean, that's what I thought was going to happen. Because I was already rolling my eyes like, fucking hell, how much Psycho can you rip off with one movie (laughs) without being named Gus Van Zandt? But... True. So true. And then when it's her, I was just, I was like, oh, okay. Well, she's, I mean, they're both killers, but he's Psycho Killer who, I guess, can't control himself, whatever. And she's the cold calculating killer. You know, well, she, you know, she obviously knows that she has to get rid of Daniela because Mm -hmm. it's all of her attempts to become the lady in the house have been just kind of nullified with the arrival of this woman. 
And considering the fact that she's already disposed of two bodies, um, what's, you know, who cares if add a third to it, you know, whether she is the killer or or just, you know, responsible for the cleanup crew, you know? Yeah. She probably has a whole system figured out by now to do it quickly, efficiently and get away with it. But I, I don't know if maybe it's, it's because of the passing of time and the fact that we're in 2023, but I like the idea that the camera pans up and it's Mino dressed up like a woman, dressed up like his mother. <laughs> I think that would have been better for me. But um, the other thing I wanted to say was when you reference Gus Van Zant and his shot for shot remake of Psycho, um, right. I just, I'm glad you um, reminded me of that because I think I started watching it one time. And after about the first, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, I was like, I can't watch this. This is ridiculous. Um, I don't know. Some of the some other people really like the fact that Gus Van Zant made a shot for shot remake of Psycho. But I don't know. The only thing that I noticed that was different about the Gus Van Zant version is that when Vince Vaughn's character or I mean, when Vin, yeah, when Vince Vaughn, who plays uh, Norman Bates, right? When he's mm-hmm. looking through the peephole at Marion Crane, played by, was it Anne Heche, I think? I think so. Yeah. he's. You can see that he's clearly masturbating um, in the Gus Van Zant version, which is the only real difference between the two movies. And I'm like, that's the thing that you decided to do to be different? To make Vince Vaughn look like he was jerking off? Like, that's, that's ridiculous. I've read about that aspect of it and i'm thinking okay so he underlined highlighted put bold face typed whatever something that i think most guys kind of assumed when they watched the original right there's no way norman bates is just standing at that peephole with his i don't know hands folded behind his back or something (laughs) watching uh, Janet Lee take was, was it Janet Lee? Take, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the actress yeah. take a shower, right? And even Anne Hage. But okay, there's no way somebody's doing that and not touching themselves in ways that you know. Would... Yeah, I mean the only the only argument you could make is that you know somebody like Norman Bates, um is still kind of innocent in a certain way. And so he's looking through the peephole and it's like, he's getting a glimpse of a naked woman for the, one of the very first times of his life. And he's just taking it all in. And if he's going to, you know, manipulate himself, it might happen later as he's, you know, as he retires to his quarters and is, is, you know, fantasizing about what he just watched, but you could make that case, I guess. But, for the most part, it's like, you know, this is what the people is there for, you know. But I think the only reason that, that aspect or that element was not in the original was because they would not let Hitchcock do it in a million years. And sure. he probably knew better than to even ask. And hell, he was already pushing his luck showing a toilet on a movie screen for the first <laughs> time in history. Right, right. <laughs> They're not going to have uh, Anthony Perkins, you know... Uh, 
moving his shoulders over some fap sounds. (laughs) Right. Get the old. It's the uh, pull pull your cheek and make the, the cheek noise. Yeah. Dude, wouldn't it be cool if you were like in one of the first uh, audiences to watch that in the theaters? Well, I don't know. There's probably Saul Bass music drowning it out. But if you were like sitting in the middle of the crowd and got to that part and you started making that sound. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been awesome. Holy cow. Yeah. You think people are getting up and walking out now. Yeah. Well, eventually you'll find somebody that says, uh, not only did I get to see Psycho in the movies, but I made masturbatory yeah. <laughs> sound effects during the peephole scene. Anyway. Most people left when she was getting killed. When I saw it, people left as soon as he started peeping through the hole. <laughs> like Mino's mother. Yeah, they should have they should have put that sound in this. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, like that, when she looks through there and sees them messing around, I don't, I don't know what's a female equivalent of a fab sound. I think it's the same thing. It really depends on how much. Well, yeah. never mind. I bet Gen Alpha has a word for it. <laughs> the math ain't mathin'. That's for sure. Uh, anyway, getting back to the movie at hand. Um, so we see Marta. She's got the knife. She's about to you know, take care of this problem that has presented itself. But Daniela wakes up just in time and escapes. And if I can direct your attention one more time to the owl. The owl. She yes. screams. Uh, there's two or three different um, attempts by Marta to stab her, which don't, none of them work. They don't land. None of them land. Um, Daniela comes through the one door, closes the door behind her and And has a good sense to lock it, has a good sense to lock it and turns her head around and sees the owl just for a split second. Again, um, this time it, I don't know that it has that many cobwebs on it, but again, I I don't know why I need to keep bringing up the owl. It's just, there's something, there's something about that owl. I don't know. Um, so then we cut to Mino, and he's in the lab, and he's asleep on it at his desk with a live bird of some sort that's sitting on the chair, like at the top of the chair. I yeah, it looks like some kind of buzzard. Yeah, yeah, a buzzard. Absolutely. Some kind of carrion eating. Yeah, that's not a fun pet. No, what definitely not. I guess it's like he's this one's next. It's going to be gutted soon. Uh, I don't yeah. know. So he seems to be kind of um, roused out of his sleep by the noise that's going on. Um, Daniela is running through the hallway. She's um, trying to escape Marta and her knife. Marta is slowly but surely stalking her. It's uh, kind of an interesting stalking sequence. But She's walking like Michael Myers. Yeah. Yeah, like no matter how all the time in the world, right? No matter how fast you run, I'm going to catch up to you, even if I walk slowly. Yep. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really cool about this scene is there's a jump scare um, that eventually happens after 
a little bit of time goes by and Marta's walking around in the hallway. She's listening at the doors to see if she can figure out where Daniela is. And uh, Daniela, let's see. Holy shit. She's walking around. She opens a door. She doesn't, I guess it's a door to a closet or maybe it's the door that is used to connect the two rooms together. I'm not sure. Um, after she realizes that there's nothing in that door or nowhere for her to go, she closes it again. And then she turns to the right and we get a jump scare with Marta with a knife. And I think it was really, really uh, effective. Really oh, wait, well is that done. before or after the spider? Thing? It's after the spider. Yeah. Which I don't think the spider was real. <laughs> that was like the weak sauces fucking spider. It's like you can see the fission line. Pulling yeah. Up. Yeah. I, I agree. Definitely not a real okay, spider. So Marta is listening at the door. Is she in here? No. Turn around. Oh, there's a ladder with a paint bucket. Yeah. I'm getting flashbacks of yesterday. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So she gets on the door. Oh, shit. She turns around. She's right there. Yeah. You're mine, bitch. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So it she's about like to stab her, but when she, she goes for the first blow of the knife and Mino grabs her arm, Mino stops her and tells her that she's stupid for trying. Yeah. Um, Marta says um, that she had to do this because she didn't want Daniela to have Mino. Um, and then Mino stabs Daniela. I'm sorry. Mino stabs Marta and Daniela screams and passes out. Oh, but first she sees the fact that her sister is right in the bed there, right next to her. Well, sort of. <laughs> yeah. I get it's hard to have the same actress play two different people in the same shot at the same time. Well, and that, you know, remember when I said earlier that there was a vertigo reference and that's the reference. It's kind of like you have the same actress, um, but portraying two different versions of the same character like right and the main male character is trying to transform her into something else right right exactly or, yeah okay but before when um the dancer girl looked over in the bed and saw laura's body laying in it it was obviously real it was obviously erica blanc without her makeup and all that, just looking very fucking dead. Right. 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 And now it's just that mannequin. It's so obviously, I mean, this thing was in a store window the day before. <laughs> and, Absolutely. <laughs> and they did a good job because Erica Block has a kind of particular nose shape. So it looks like they kind of went for that a little bit. But the eyes are half open. Yeah. And her eyes weren't open before. I mean, the last time we saw her. I don't remember if they were or not. Yeah. Maybe she had to get up and go pee or something. (laughs) (laughs) It sucks getting old. You got to get up and go pee. Every two hours. What the hell? (laughs) I didn't even drink anything. Give me a break. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I think that maybe this scene is part of what was censored. I don't know. 
because after Daniela passes out, um, Mino just keeps stabbing her and it gets pretty violent. Um, I mean, they don't show like insertion wounds or anything of that specific sort, but you know, it's pretty, it's pretty violent. And it is still black and white. Right. So they could have used chocolate syrup like Hitchcock did. But yeah, like you said, you're not seeing the actual knife penetration of the body. But I guess, I don't know, maybe in 66 that was kind of shocking. It's not like she was naked in the shower, but I don't think Hitchcock ever did anything that, well, had any shots that were that violent and that prolonged. Because when you watch Psycho, you never see the knife actually go into the body. You just, you know, it's all cut separately. Yeah. You see the knife, you see the face, you see the body, you see the the blood draining down the tub. You never actually see the knife touch the body. In here, it's just like, bam, 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 bam. And... Yeah, and, you know, to give credit to the director, um, he obviously didn't have the brilliance of Hitchcock and the ability and the uh, the resources to make a, a kill scene that was as extravagant as the one that Hitchcock did for the shower scene with all the cuts. But I think, you know, I think Hitchcock said something like it took forever to make this that particular scene. Oh, wait, I'm just watching it over again. You don't actually see the knife hit the body. No, you do not. I psyched myself out. This guy's a genius. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, showing the knife, close-up of the knife, or showing Mino and his arm movements, and then, you know, Marta with her hand and the blood in her hand. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, it's like when people watch Reservoir Dogs and they could swear that they saw that cop get his ear cut off. Right. And you totally don't. Yeah. Because the imagination fills it in. So that just happened to me right here live on this podcast. <laughs> God, I'm so embarrassed. So the, the very next scene is we've cut to Mino driving his car. Um, Daniela is in the passenger seat and he's doing his best to act like he's driving a car. They show the funny part is they show like lights coming from the back. I mean, obviously, right. This is a car that's, this is actually a studio set. They're shaking the Mm -hmm. car back and forth and they're showing lights going on and off to, to kind of replicate the environment of driving, but there's nobody behind him. So why they're making it look like there's a, a motorcycle like 10 feet behind him trying right. to signal somebody in Morse code with his fucking headlight. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so Daniela wakes up from being passed out. She's got, I, she's got a coat on. Um, but let's see. Um, oh, I'm, I'm too far. To, okay. So uh, Mino, he, he, at this point, it's, pretty clear that he thinks this is Laura and not Daniela and that this is their wedding day. And he starts talking about, I don't know why you didn't wear your white dress. You should have worn your white dress. It's uh, the best thing to wear when you're getting married and it's our wedding day. And Daniela's like, I don't understand what you're talking about. You're crazy. Um, 
but Mino doesn't care. He will not be convinced otherwise that anything else is different. Like this is Laura, this is his wedding day. And if you really believe that he's faking all this, then you have to ask yourself for whose benefit, you know? Um, Cause if he's eventually going to just kill Laura, I, you know, you don't really know what his motivation is. Is he trying to marry her? When he gets her to the beach, is it just to have sex with her or is it to kill her? I mean, it's really not, you know, the, the this last act of the movie where, you know, all of these different intentions and characters kind of come together and, and, uh, and, and get finalized. Um, you don't really know what Mino's motivations are at this point. But there's definitely somebody behind them with the, yeah. with the flashing light, you know, with the motorcycle light, like you said. Um, that comes and goes. Yeah. It'd be one thing if it moved around a little bit or got brighter and dimmer, but this one is like, it's there and then it's gone and then it's back. Right. So, okay. Um. So... Mino looks down at his gas gauge and it shows that he is way below uh, the empty signal for gas and realizes that he's got to get gas. Now, I thought they were going to run out of gas and be stuck on the side of the road. But in the next scene, he makes it to the gas station and um, he beeps his horn and the attendant comes out and he looks over at Mina. Oh, sorry, Mina. There's no Mina. There's no, there's not, not even a person called Mina. It's Mino um, and Marta. Mina is him when he's wearing the dress. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, he gives Daniela this look like, hey, if you even think about, you know, doing anything, I just want to show you the gun that I have here in my pocket. So this is more evidence to the idea of maybe he really does know what's going on because... If he really thought that this was Laura, why would he need to threaten her with a gun, right? Yeah, he's sane enough to know that she might resist. Right, exactly. So, yeah, I guess we're still not fully decided whether he's crazy or not. Yeah. Or how crazy he is. So, as nonchalantly as she possibly can... Daniela decides to extract the registration book for the car out of the side pocket. Now, my question is, and again, this is just one of those practical, there's no answer hypothetical questions, but why didn't she just open the door and jump out and run away and tell the gas station attendants help, you know, I'm, I'm being held well, captive by this guy. I don't know. Do you think he would be crazy enough to just shoot her right there at the gas station in front of everybody? And then peel off? Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe she she's just thinks it's not worth the risk because, hell, she just saw him stab somebody to death. I don't know. What would you do in a situation like that? Um, 
I mean, we're out in public. There's two other men here. And he has a gun. But but he puts the gun back in his pocket. I think you have enough time. As long as the door isn't locked and as long as Mino isn't in control of the locking mechanism, you should be able to open the door and jump out and scream because there's two gas station attendants there. And you should be able to do all that before he has a chance to figure out what's going on and grab the gun because on top of everything else, he's nuts. Like he, at least he's halfway nuts. He thinks that this is, he thinks Daniela is Laura. So, you know. I don't know. That's what I would do. But then again. Yeah, I, I think almost anything would be better than taking the registration booklet and dropping it outside the window. On the off chance that somebody's going to notice that it's there. And B, they're immediately going to go and pick it up and take it into the office and notify the police. And then in the middle of the night, the police are going to have nothing better to do than, oh shit, let's go track down Mr. Mino bonker pants because his <laughs> fucking car registration <laughs> was found at the gas station. Yeah. Mino bonker pants. I mean, <laughs> okay. But I forgot what his last name was. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's his new last name. Yeah. <laughs> and, one thing I can tell you about Italy without getting in too much trouble with Italians, because <laughs> they'll admit it and laugh like, yeah, that's true. The national motto should be domani, dopo domani, which means tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. Because that's, procrastination is like an, the national pastime. <laughs> okay. And the joke is if, uh, if you take your car to a mechanic or if you're buying something from a store and you ask when can it be delivered or when can this, uh, when are you going to do your homework? When are you going to whatever? If somebody says domani, which means tomorrow, that means within the next two, three, maybe four days. <laughs> okay. If they say dopo domani, that means at least a month. Okay, it never means the day after tomorrow. So, so these guys at the gas station, A, if they find this registration booklet laying on the ground, it might be Domani before they even pick it up off the ground. Okay. Yeah, but right. But I can right. guarantee you it's going to be Dopo Domani before they call the fucking police and say, oh, look, we found this registration booklet. And then the cops are going to be like, uh, yeah, okay, we'll get in touch with them. Dopo domani. Right. So it, she just bought herself two weeks, I mean, two months of running around with this batshit guy. <laughs> but meanwhile, in the movie, all of this happens within a few hours. So. Well, yeah, that that's the most unbelievable part of the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I, my uh, suspension of disbelief rubber band has just snapped in right. half right there. There you go. <laughs> Not, it has nothing to do with any of the other stuff. It's just that it's the, it's the registration book. So yeah. speaking of which, the woman that we just saw get Swiss cheese in the hallway is um, still alive and kicking. Well, here's the thing. Okay. And this may be related to the version that you looked at or that you have, but you said yours is 127, or not 100, one hour and 27 minutes long, but 
the version that I watched, okay, she drops the the registration book out the window as nonchalantly as possible. They drive away. And after they drive away, the one attendant notices it. He picks it up and he says, um, we should go after him or take it back to him. And the other guy says, no, he's a long way away. Why don't we just hand it over to the highway patrol? Because maybe this car has been stolen and you didn't even, I didn't even think that that was an option, but yeah, if the car was stolen, Mino uh, is not actually the person who was driving the car. So they decide to hand it over to the police because that's the best option for resolving this issue. And also it kind of takes them off the hook for having to do anything. Um, but Well, why would they think the car is stolen? Well, simply- because if you're assuming this couple came into our gas station and before they were there, there was no registration book on the ground. They come, we fill it up, they leave. Oh, look, here's a registration book on the ground. Maybe the car was stolen. So it was stolen and it just so happened to fall out the door that nobody ever fucking opened. Somebody dropped that book. Right. Not because somebody was stealing the car, because if you're in a car that's being stolen, you're not, you know, why advertise it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Instead of saying maybe the car was stolen, I would automatically go to maybe somebody's being kidnapped. Right. Wouldn't you? Yes. And then they call the cops and the cops are like, okay, yeah, get the phone book. Finally. (laughs) Right. It was nice to be reminded of uh, this thing that uh, these gen alphas won't know anything about. (laughs) A a registration book and a telephone. Yeah. 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 Well, so this is the important, or not the important thing, but this is the thing I wanted to bring up. Immediately after the scene with the two gas station attendants ends, we cut to the highway patrol people who are taking a phone call about the registration booklet. But this is one of the scenes that was cut from whatever version was out there before this new Blu-ray came out Um, because this scene is completely different looking and we don't actually like it's the, the, um, the cropping or the aspect ratio of the film is different. The fidelity is different. Um, It just looks like a completely different cut. If you look at the YouTube version, which is what I'm looking at right now, the YouTube version with no subtitles. That's what we're looking at at this point. You know, you, you see the two highway patrol people. The next scene is a car with it's Mino and uh, Daniela and they're driving towards the beach. Then there's um, a phone call that gets started. Now, I don't know in the version that you watched, there is a very long scene where the highway patrol calls Mino's house, the phone rings, and then we find out that, in fact, um, Marta isn't really dead all the way, and she hears the phone, but it takes like five minutes for her to crawl across the floor from wherever it was that she woke up from to get to where the phone is. And And they make you feel those five minutes. But it's... 
So, okay, so I'm I'm assuming that the version that you watched had these scenes in it, right? Yeah. Okay. But She's did they look any the did they look any different to you or did they look No. Okay, so you must have been watching the Blu-ray. Um Yeah. So Yeah, I think I definitely have the uh Blu-ray rip because I saw that there's the Rachel Nisbet commentary. Oh, okay. I hadn't listened yeah. to it yet. Got to be. So so what's interesting about this sequence of scenes is that Marta is slowly but surely crawling across the floor to answer the phone. The guy hangs up and the and the other guy says, "Are you sure you dialed the wrong the right number? Why don't you try it again?" So the phone keeps ringing. But while all that's going on, we it's it's intercut with scenes of uh Mino continuing to drive the car and from a I don't know if continuity is the right word, but from a continuity standpoint, it almost seemed like they were telling the story that Mino is driving back to the house because it's like, okay, she's, she's, she's going, the phone's ringing. She's reaching out for it. Then here comes the car. It's driving. Then we're back to her. Excuse me. Then we're back to her. And then we're back to him driving again. And, He's not heading towards the so house. So like they were trying to create one of those tension. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Mechanisms. Like who's going to get there first kind of thing. Like, or what's, yeah. what's going to happen first. Is she going to get to the phone or is he going to get there? But, but plot wise, how would that make sense? Because he was taking Daniela slash Laura to right. get married. And why drive your gas tank out and then fill it up and turn and then around drive and back. back? Right. Yeah. Plot wise, it doesn't make any sense, but that was the feeling I got when I was watching it. Yeah. So maybe if they oh. added some line in there where she said something like, Oh, I forgot my special G string back at the house. Let's go get it. So we can enjoy our honeymoon. And then they cut on a scene of him considering it, you know? Then it'd be like, oh shit, maybe they are coming back. Yeah, and then I, we find out. Later, I think it was right, anal beads, weren't. not a g-string, but anyway. <laughs> well, I was trying to be polite. <laughs> <laughs> Too late for all that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've been canceled for two hours already. So. <laughs> well, so eventually Marta answers the phone. Thank God. After what I'm, I'm going to guess is twenty something rings, and yeah. Um, they realize that it's, you know, it's somebody calling for help, you know, on the other end of the, of the line. So the cops head out to Mino's residence and they find her and, and, uh, Marta says, um, that Mino has killed everyone. Um, and then she dies and the cops put an APB out. Now, the only thing I have in my notes is, do you think, eh, this doesn't really matter that much, but do you think that she, by saying that Mino killed everyone, are are the cops going to assume that that even means that the mother was killed um, and it wasn't an accident? Like, is she trying to offload the guilt of the fact that she pushed the mother down the the stairs? And blame it on Mino. Like, it doesn't really matter that much because she dies anyway, but I just have that in my notes. Uh, I don't know. Do you think she knows that she's about to die, or do you think she thinks she'll be saved? Oh, I don't know. 
But doesn't she just... Because if she thinks any minute now they're going to bring in a couple blood bags from the Red Cross and I'll be fine, then if that's the case, yeah, you want to pin everything on him. And, uh... Yeah, I don't... But if she thinks that she's actually really, really going to die, I mean, you can't gaslight God with with Mino did it. Don't send me to hell. It wasn't me. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe she just assumes nobody's even suspicious about the mother. So if I just say he murdered them all, they're not going to think the mother. They're going to think... Well, I guess just the the girls that he brought home, because as far as they know, well, no, because they're going to find, yeah, they're going to find, uh, what's her name? Laura's body. Right. In the bed. Right. So, yeah, somebody had to have murdered her. And then the sisters, she assumes the sister is also going to be killed or uh, what's her name? Uh, Daniela is going to be killed. Maybe. And if they put the other two in the vats of acid, then what all of them is she talking about? Right. Because, yeah, she she wouldn't expect him to kill uh, Daniela. Because he was defending Daniela from her. That's why she got stabbed. That's why she got stabbed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So who is she talking about? Or I guess that was your question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before I, I went on this long. It's kind of ambiguous. It's to... like, you know, she, it, that scene serves to basically let the audience know that the cops know that Mino is the that bad he, guy. Yeah. He's a crazy psycho killer. But, you know, the details of that, you know, we can quibble over, I guess. Um, but it doesn't really matter. So Marta dies, and the next scene is that the cops send out or they they broadcast some sort of APB for um, mm-hmm. all of the uh, you know the people to go and try to intercept Mino. Now, again, just to close the loop here, the if you're watching the YouTube version, you can see this all of the. Lower fidelity scenes that I'm assuming were cut from one of the versions of this film uh, end after we see the cop with his um, microphone who's announcing the APB. The next scene is the car coming out of the left-hand side of the screen in the distance um, for the final scene. And we're back to the original widescreen and better fidelity version. So I think that's where the cuts start from. The cut starts from where the gas station attendants decide to pass along the registration book to the highway patrol and the cut ends and returns to the original version after the, um, the APB is called out. So not anything important, but just something to bring up for, people who are interested in different versions of this film. So uh, Mino drives the car over to this, looks like an abandoned castle, but he's down by the, looks like he's down by the beach. 
And he continues to talk about, you know, um, the wedding and the dress and all this stuff. And eventually, um, Laura, I'm sorry, eventually Daniela tells him, look, you know, uh, Laura's dead. I'm Daniela, you know. Um, but Mino puts his hands over his ears, like in this really obvious gesture of, I don't want to believe the truth. Mm-hmm. And as he heads back towards where she's standing, she shoves the door into his face and pushes him and runs away. And his immediate reaction is to yell, no, again. I don't know why you would do that. Like, why would he do that? You know, is he saying no because he's finally realizing the truth? Or is he saying no because he thought this was going to be over, but she pushed the door in his face and ran away, and now he's got to go chase after her? Like, to to stop and just, you know, exclaim in anguish, with the, with your wide eyes, no, no, no! Like that doesn't make well, any sense that you would act that way. He does it very much like he did when Laura crashed. Right, exactly. Remember, he uh, his face tightens up, he his head rears back, and he screams no. And this scene, in other ways, mirrors that scene because they're near a body of water near the road, right? I mean, they're at the beach. He's chasing her through the sand. Yep. And uh, earlier I was saying lake or river or whatever. I guess it could have been part of the, the beach or the sea. Um, so where that was a scene where he lost Laura, this is where... Um, more metaphorically, less literally, he loses Daniela. Right. So I think they're trying to have as many connections between this scene as that scene. Okay. And him screaming no like that might be part of it. Okay. That makes sense. I don't really understand him trying to rip off her gown because that kind of doesn't make sense. Well, this is the next. Yeah. Well, this is the next thing that I wanted to discuss really quickly uh, because we're like four and a half hours in at this point, but. Um, Mm -hmm. when, when, so, so Daniela runs away, he chases her, he, he, you know, she falls, he's on top of her, he rips off her clothes and then he does that thing that he did earlier with the hooker where his eyes roll on his back and his head, the O face. Right. And I guess my question is, is he raping her? on the beach and we just don't see it. Um, I, I think that might be it. Yeah. I mean, she's pretty undressed. I mean, he's obviously tearing her gown off and she's losing her, uh, cover, so to speak. Yeah. She's becoming more and more naked. The first time I saw this and, it's like they're wrestling and he's tearing at the gown and then he gets his O face and I'm thinking, Oh, he's choking her. He must be strangling her, but he's not. He's not. Right. Yeah. His hands aren't anywhere near her neck. His. Yeah, exactly. 
So then I thought, oh, okay, he must, well, why else would you tear, I mean, not, don't do this, kids, in real life. Right. But if you're tearing somebody's clothes off and you're madly in love with them and it's your wedding night, quote unquote, Billy Idol will tell you what that's all about. And maybe he is raping her. And that might be one of the things that the Italian censors shit kicked right the fuck out because they weren't having it. Yeah. And right. The O face that he made killing the, the two girls that he brought home, they weren't the love of his life. Right. They weren't Laura or the girl that he thought he was going to marry. And for him, this one is. Yes. So why would he try to kill her? He's finally having her. And I don't know. I can't remember exactly how the conversation went at the beginning, but do we have any indication that he and Laura had sex before? I think there was a line where she said something like, not here or not now. So maybe they had. Right. They may have. Yeah, it's implied maybe that they've at least fooled around a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you're right. It's like he's trying to consummate the relationship on the beach here, you know, as part of the marriage ceremony that is going on in his brain. Yeah, because from his point of view, he should have already been married to this woman weeks or months or however much uh, bird cobwebs ago it was. (laughs) And... Maybe here it's actually finally happening, but there's no indication of it. We don't see like his pants down around his ankles or yeah, 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 anything like that. But I don't think it's an accident that they were wrestling and he was tearing her clothes off, right? And well, and you know, it's it's kind of shit. like you know, it, 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 this time period, um. Even like the littlest kind of hints of violence or weird sexuality type things is enough to make people like not look at the screen or squint their eyes or look away or put their hands up because it's a little bit objectionable. So they really didn't have to do much, I guess, in this scene to imply of what he was doing. Like he was... You know, she's on the sand and he's on top and then he makes these weird faces. And, you know, that's kind of enough, because if you're if you're in the movie theater in 1966 and you're watching this, you're probably not really watching with your with your eyes wide open. You're kind of like, oh, I don't know if I should watch this or not. I shouldn't, you know, Mm -hmm. should I should I avert my eyes? So anyway. Or you're smart enough to figure out what's happening, even if they don't show it to you right right like norman bates peeping through the window i mean through the people yeah yeah exactly (laughs) oh thanks gus i didn't connect that dot (laughs) (laughs) well but i i like how this cop gets him to just calmly walk back oh this is this is great so so he looks uh, he's in the middle of doing all this nonsense and all of a sudden he looks and he sees lights you know, emerging over the hill and it's, it's the search party that have come and they found him and 
he does this fantastic thing. There's two things I want to talk about real, real quick in this last scene. Um, first of all, he tries to turn the tables. The cops show up and he's like, oh my God, look at this woman. She's obviously out of her mind. She tried to kill me. She killed so-and-so. She did, you got to take her away. She's the crazy one. And that was a smart move. And it also shows you that he may not be completely insane. It may, he may be very cold and calculated about this after all. But the thing that I thought was really interesting is that in the subtitles, it says, or he says, she killed my maid. Mm -hmm. In the English audio, he says, she killed my fiance. Now, that's a big Ah. difference because if he's referring to the same person, Marta, then in the audio, he's admitting that they were going to get married because that was the deal that they struck up. But he could also be referring to Laura. She killed my fiance. She killed her sister, that fiance. But in the subtitles, it just says she killed my maid. Yeah. So it's really... I I think it's accidental. It's kind of, it wasn't purposely, this wasn't purposely done to create confusion, but it does create confusion mm-hmm. a little bit. And I thought that was really cool, even though it was an well, accident. Let's see what she said. Let's see what he says in Italian. Yeah, that would be good. Because um, I certainly don't know. She killed my governess, is what he says. Okay. Which is yeah. a synonym for maid. Or the, the housekeeper, yeah. Okay, right. And he does this thing again where he puts his hands over his ears. Um, it's not something that I saw saw him do early in the film, but he does it a lot towards the end of the film. Like he just, it's it's this it's this very obvious physical uh, reaction to the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, so the cops. Uh, they take Daniela and they bring the, you know, they, they walk her over to one of the, uh, one of the Jeeps and they walk away with, um, with Mino. But before Mino can hear them, uh, you can tell that the cops already are in on it. And they're like, are we, we're just basically, they were like, yeah, let's just, we're going to continue to pretend that you know, we're, we're bringing him to the police station to give a statement that he's not actually under arrest. And, um, it's like they invented de-escalate. What do they call it? De-escalation. Yeah. 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 Should I, this guy should go around training every police department in the world. Right. (laughs) Should I cuff him? No, 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 no. It's okay. Just, it'll be okay. No problem. Mm -hmm. Um, of course, the other thing is that they leave the scene with the car and the door open and the headlights on. They just don't care. And maybe somebody else is going to come and clean that part up. But uh, the very, very, very end of this movie is kind of like, eh, it's a little bit of a fart. It's kind of like, wah, wah. Fart. They hand the guy a cigarette 
He lights it. He takes a couple of puffs. And then the car drives off into the distance. And that's the end of the movie. They don't really say, they don't really tell him that they suspect him or that they know that he's really the murderer. They don't say anything like, from a tongue-in-cheek standpoint, like, yeah, you know where you're going. Um, there's going to be a lot of cigarettes that you're going to need to use as, um, <laughs> as, as some sort of currency. Like, they don't say any of that. They basically just give him a cigarette, drive away, and we're assuming that, you know, he's taken well, into custody. What if that's and, like a little sadistic twist? It's like, we know we're going to send this guy up the river, either to the prison or the... I don't know, Arkham Asylum or wherever the hell they're going to put him. Let's get him smoking right before he goes in. <laughs> yeah, because, he, right, because he doesn't smoke. He's like, yeah, I he don't He says, smoke. I've never smoked yeah. before. Well, here, go ahead, try it. Yeah, let's You'll love it. to something that you can't have once you're done. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a, the little cherry on top of locking him up. <laughs> but yeah, it and then it just, whoop, whoop, whoop. Yeah. So the ending is, you know, it's it's not as climactic as you would expect it or hoped for it to be, but um, that's it. That's the end of the film, and I I enjoyed it for the most part. I think that, uh, like I said, only having watched it twice, and one of the two times watching it, I had to basically keep pausing it to make notes. Uh, I'd like to go back and watch it again, especially the Blu-ray version. But I have a question, and I did not go to the trouble of trying to score this on the Jalo score, because okay. quite honestly, I didn't have enough time. But is this a Jalo? Like this always shows up in everybody's Jalo list, but how is it a Jalo? You know, I was thinking that myself because it kind of reminded me of psych out for murder right in this film let's see how many people die there's laura there's the mother there's uh the dancer lady yeah, the there's a street walker lady and then there's uh marta marta right, right? there's never any question about who killed anybody Right. So the mystery element does not exist. Kind of like, well, very much like Psych Out for Murder. Um, it has a lot of Hitchcock staples, but I don't think taxidermy and mother issues and peeping holes <laughs> are anywhere on the Jalo score. Right. So there well, is a peeping know. Tom peeping. Score, yeah. Peeping yeah. Tom. Yeah. Okay. I forgot. Well, that's a new addition, right? Well, what's the, I mean, she's not, a, she's not Tom. She's peeping uh, Tammy, but whatever. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, the, <laughs> the peeping Tom point is something you've recently added to the Correct. Score. Correct. It wasn't there before. Okay. It wasn't there before. Um, I don't know. Normally, before we do these episodes, I go through all of my Jalo books, and I say all like I have a library. <laughs> I have like three <laughs> or four books. Um, it's not listed in the Howarth book at all, and Psych Out for Murder, I think, was. 
Okay. Which, you know, it surprised me that that one was in there, and it surprises me that this one is not, because I would put them kind of in the same boat. Yeah, and... I mean, they're thrillers, but they're, there's... I mean, there's more to Jala than just being a thriller. Right. You know? Yes. So... But I mean... Uh, we we've kind of accepted the idea that Jalo in general, without getting too specific, means mystery to a certain yeah. extent. So right. just like Psych Out for Murder, I argued with Psych Out for Murder that the mystery was how's this gonna end? <laughs> and you could you could apply that here too. Um because you're not exactly sure where this is going, but this is definitely a lot more predictable than Psych Out for Murder. Psych Out for Murder, it was like, is she crazy? Is she not crazy? What's going on? Her sister just... And the, for me, that would be the same mystery or question in this film. Right. Who's playing who and who's crazy and who's doing this on purpose? And Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. I mean, we said it with the mother. I mean, does she, when she says, um, half the time I don't know what I'm saying, the other half I know exactly what I'm saying, dun, 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 and then you can't trust anything that comes out of her mouth for the rest of the movie <laughs> or that came before. Right. Did she do that on purpose? Was she right or was she lying? And it's the same with him towards the end. Because like I said, is he really freaking out or is he just pretending he's freaking out or so? Yeah. If you want to call that the mystery, sure. But I'd be interested to see how it turns out on the score. Yeah. I, I, I should go back and try it. I mean, the thing about the Jalo score for films like this is that you, you really have to, improvise a little bit with you know w w where you award points because things aren't really cut and dry like they are after 1970 but yeah. um anyway that was my question it, it's uh i guess it's up for debate as to whether it's really a giallo or not but again 1966 only two years after blood and black lace you know Kind of mm -hmm. the door was wide open for this particular, you know, felone of uh, films. Um, well, that's something we've noticed through this whole trip through the proto jolly is they'll take elements that came from the original couple of Baba films, well, the original Baba Jolly and take them in different directions and twist them and mutate them and play with them to see what they can come up with. And uh, I think that people that like Jolly would like this film. I wouldn't put it on my top 20 list of examples of a perfect Jollo film, but uh, I would say it's... It's a step along the way between Baba's early stuff and Bird. So yeah, and 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 f for its own on its own merits, 
it's well photographed and mm-hmm. it's not amateurishly done. Like, you know, compare this film to um, the embalmer. Um, this is definitely a, a cut of, you know, a step, a, a step above as far as quality is concerned. And um, what do you mean? Like production technical? Yeah. Production execution? quality and, Oh yeah, production wise, it blows it out of the water. Yep, but but even uh, like the Monster of Venice had really cool concepts and ideas. Yeah, that I just think weren't explored to their full potential. Right, right, right. But every one of these films we watch has something really cool about it. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing that I've been just disgusted by and felt like it was a total waste of time. And uh, I think these are films that not too many people are watching. I mean, maybe they are because they're getting Blu-ray releases. But even then, relatively speaking to all the other movies that are out there that people could spend their time on. Right. I really enjoy going back to the past and watching these little known films that only a certain small subset of the population has any interest in. And... I enjoy them more than a lot of the movies that come out today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. And the more I can fit it into a Jalo box, the the better it is. But right. I think a lot of people have already been through the the pile and sorted everything. <laughs> I yeah. don't think we're gonna find an undiscovered Jalo. I don't think so. I mean, we're not looking for one, we're just kind of seeing what happened along the way. Yeah. And that's interesting too. Yeah, we're not we're not on a um, on a quest for buried Jallo treasure. So good film, and uh, like I said, um, if you get a you can get your hands on the Blu-ray. I've seen a couple of places on eBay where people have separated out the films and are selling them yeah. one at a time. So you might be able to grab it that way. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had any idea how good the other three in that set were. No, not a clue. Never heard of them. But yeah, I think I would return to that one more time at least just to just like I said before, just to watch it without the burden of trying to read the subtitles in, you know, and and from what I've watched of the Blu-ray, the picture quality is really, really nice. So um, I would watch it again. Not tomorrow, but, you know. Yeah, I would watch it again, too. And like you, not maybe anytime soon, because my watch list keeps growing and my rewatch list keeps shrinking. So, <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Speaking of which, any idea what the next one might be? Well, listen, I think we need to stick with our Mino Guarini double feature here. And next episode, we can do uh, Omicido per Appuntamento, date for a murder, which um, is only a year later. So it looks like this may have been the next thing that uh, Mino directed after... uh, the one we just watched, but I'm not sure. 
Okay. And it's in color. Yay. Yeah. So date for a murder. Oh, and you know, the, the thing that I didn't um, give any details on was the voting that we had uh, asked our listening audience to do for this episode. It was not an overwhelming majority for um, the third eye, but it definitely won. Um, I had posted the poll to three different Facebook groups as well as the Reddit, the, the, the subreddit of Jallo. And I think the third eye won by maybe five or six or seven votes. So it seems like most of you wanted to hear us talk about this. And, um, but anyway, uh, we have a couple left before we get to episode 100 and date for a murder is the next one on my list. And up until a few hours ago, I didn't even realize that's the same director as the one where we were talking about tonight. So that's kind of cool. Um, date for a murder is very different than this film. It is a kind of thriller spy giallo type thing, but it's definitely a giallo in that there is a mystery and, um, a bit of a twist at the end. So, um, that'll be fun. Cool. And, and then after we do that, I think we talked about doing, um, death knocks twice, I think. And then that'll mm-hmm. do it for our proto giallo tour. All right. Well, I think we're both pretty talked out here. We've made it to the five hour mark. <laughs> um, for those of we you, made it. yeah, we made it. For those of you still listening, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at jallo chow chow at gmail.com. You can also go to our Facebook page, jallo chow chow on Facebook, and contact us through there. If you're interested in looking at my website, thejalloscore.com, that's it, thejalloscore.com. So there you go. Um, as always, I like to plug uh, our fearless leader, Matt Wall, at IHateMattWall.com or MattWallWrites.com. I think he's got both of those. And we never give uh, Al any plugs because he has nothing to plug, but... <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I remain unpluggable. <laughs> very good. Very good. So that'll do it for us, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening and sticking around. We'll see you next time for Date for a Murder. And until that happens, ciao, ciao, everyone. Ciao, ciao.